0: Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor.
1: If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings.
0: All right, so episode 105. We are on part four of David Rothenberg. And if you guys are just tuning into this, stop what you're doing, go back. And listen to the first parts. I hate it when people do that. Like I so I started listening to a hundred and five. Why? Why would you start four parts into a story? Let me tell you a
1: secret. secret. At the beginning we put part one, part two, part three. For your pleasure. For your not pleasure. <laughs> a different word. For your convenience information
0: Information. for your info
1: fyi a word that you guys all knew that i was trying to say but i couldn't figure it out so
0: start out part one just saying um and so before we continue on with part four of the boy that fire could not kill you can find us social media on twitter at color me dead pod you can find us on facebook color me dead podcast and if you feel like Jumping into Thunderdome itself, we have the Color Me Dead podcast group. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Color Me Dead Podcast, and you can follow me at Color Me Dead Angel and Nikki. At Gory underscore Nikki. If you guys want to send us severed heads, a finger, co- cookie butter, stickers, mm-hmm. treats, poems, pig's hearts, a poem. You can send that to PO Box 1610 Vernal Utah 84078. And if you have any questions comments, or concerns, emotional outbursts, you can email me can email me How I you know me? Jesus. Act. You can email us at color me dead com. Okay, thanks. Bye. <clears throat> yes, that.
1: Um should we say thanks to our Patreon examinators?
0: Yes, Sharon Hoffman, Rhett Harris, and Melissa Morgan. And all
1: of our Patreon donators. Thank you, thank you. If you've joined recently, in the last two months, your perks will be going out soon.
0: Um, If you guys want to check out the book that we use to tell you this story, you can read David by Marie Rothenberg and Mel White. Also, we have merchandise. And if you would you like to see some merchandise, you can go to colormedeadpod.threadless.com and check out all our nifty designs. You can even get a skateboard. <clears throat> you can. You can get phone cases. You can get blankets. You can get clothing. Yes. A bath mat, a shower curtain. All the things, Color Me Dead.
1: Oh, S- you can surround your whole life and color me dead. Yeah, you can. We do.
0: But anyway, recap. So David is still in critical condition and he's at Irvine Medical Burn Unit. Um, Marie has been befriended by Ken and Carrie. Oh my goodness. Ken and Judy Curtis, who are helping her find strength to carry on with David's treatment for his burns. Charles has been arrested and has asked for no trial. So one of the pressures and looming horrors that Marie and David were facing were was finally terminated. Charles was behind bars, and this was a huge leap forward, and now she and David could could focus entirely on David and his long road of recovery. Now, there were so many things that were happening all around that I'm not even sure how Marie was able to keep herself together. David was having a really rough go at this point. His lungs were trying to heal themselves, and it, the skin inside was like sloughing off. So all the sooty tissue that had been burned on there is sloughing off, and then he has to cough it out. Uh, Marie had actually met with Dr. Ockhauer, who who arrived semi-dressed for surgery. There had been little chance for David's lungs to have been cleared out by the medical teams, and the fact that they had started like, Clearing up themselves was pretty impossible and miraculous. Dr. Ockhauer told Marie that David had still been fighting his heart out, but they had run into a very serious problem. David was far far more critical, and there was a lot of unknown territory they still had to truck through. The doctor had advised they needed to get dressed, and they needed to go see David. He told Marie that her son was conscious and that he was coughing. When Marie was still in New York and she first learned about the fire... The police in New York had been advised to um, to prepare themselves to be the bearer of bad news, basically. Yeah. That in the event that David didn't pull through the first like few nights that he was there, they had to get themselves prepared mentally, emotionally, that kind of thing, to go and tell her. Um, and basically that was happening today with the police, the Buena Park Police Department. They had all been told... You need to prep yourself. If David goes into surgery and he doesn't come out, you guys have to be the one to go tell Marie no. that her son died.
1: I'd be like, <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom. Could you take this over? I I got to go.
0: Dude, I would have played the... I'd have been like, one, two, three, dub's not. Yeah. Like, fucking hands then, out. Draw straws. I don't
1: give a fuck what we have to do, but I'm going to try
0: to get out of this. She's like, I'm not playing this fucking game with you. So... Oh. Both the police in New York and the police in California both had to, like, test their own metal, go in the bathroom and be like, today's the day that you tell somebody their kid died and we don't cry about it. Like, that's, could you, could you imagine? Could you? Could you? Walking up to somebody and trying to keep your shit together as they fucking fall apart in front of you. And you tell them that their child didn't make it?
1: I would have to, like, hand them a note because I wouldn't be able to keep my shit together long enough for
0: words. I'd be like, here, this is what the note says. I think it would be different in different situations. When Marie and John went into David's room, the head that was so swollen that belonged to the little burned boy turned when Marie spoke. She let David know that she and John were there and that they were going to stay there and that he was going to be okay. David nodded and he tried to speak. But the only thing that really came out were like these strange guttural like ugh, you know gurgling noises and she had to stu- you know he's he's got the he's got the desire and the will but he's still choking on like his own tissues that's trying to come up. Didn't he have a breathing tube in yep. too? Yeah, so he was on the ventilator as well.
1: Marie told David that she knew he wanted to talk to her. She wanted him to talk too, but they both had to be patient. She told David it might be weeks or months before he was able to get sound out and that he needed to wait so that his lungs could heal. David nodded but tried to speak again, gurgling and growling only. There were still tubes down his throat, (laughs) tissues being coughed up, and blood in his throat. There were tiny painful gasps between his attempts his attempt at talking every time he tried to speak it caused him to start coughing even more and blood spat out of his mouth marie was desperate to touch him and let him know how much she was how much he was loved but any touch could cause his skin to break open and do more harm than good i couldn't handle that i would want to touch my baby i'd be like mm-hmm. just i didn't want i need to touch you all marie could do at this point was tell david that he was going to be okay and that she loved him over and over again We have a surprise for you, David. Marie and John had brought a brand new portable tape player to play music for David because this was before we had our iPhones and Mm -hmm. Bluetooth speakers. (laughs) (coughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, They placed a box of tapes containing David's favorite music on a shelf over his bed. John set up the tape player, placed batteries into the machine, and set up the speakers. The ICU was suddenly filled with joyous tunes, which are going to be in your head for the next three months it's a world of laughter a world of tears
0: it's a world of hope and a world of fears <laughs> we stopped at the same time i know that's all i got <laughs> like, i i actually i started crying when i was reading this because um i got kind of choked up when i was in disneyland and i went on it's a small right. world because like dude it's, it was like it's like your childhood dream it was the first time I'd ever been to Disneyland, dude. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a momentous thing. And, um, you know, not that, dude, it's a small, small world ride is difficult. But <clears throat> anyway, but I got all excited. at the same time, it's like... It
1: is. It's, it's really such like, like oh my a happy God. feeling. Like I'm at the happiest place on earth.
0: I ne- <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> so when I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, man... And like the fact that he was so excited about music and that's what they decided to play for him. Yeah. It's a world of laughter, world of tears. Like, you ain't fucking kidding. Yeah. Anyway. Well Pussy. after
1: after that his or when they started playing it, his giant swollen head jerked towards the sound of the music that had started to play. Marie told everyone how <coughs> Davy loved to dance, sing and jump around to music. They were hoping that the sound of music would lift his spirits and bring up the morale in the room, since he couldn't speak. Um, But he could hear. Can you hear it, David? The tiny swaddled body began to move awkwardly to the sounds of the tape player. He spent hours tapping away to music in the Brooklyn apartment before his accident.
0: So one of his absolute favorites was... It's a small it's a world.
1: Small world.
0: And uh, he he actually really enjoyed a lot of the Disney tunes that were made available, and that just happened to be his favorite. And he listened to it often. In fact, he had one of those. Do you remember back in the eighties how we had the little Disney flip top record player where it came with oh, a yeah. lid, and then like you mm-hmm. had a little pull out drawer on the bottom that held all your your little forty five records, and you pop the top open. He had one of those and he about wore the record out. He had played it so many times. So my brothers actually had one of those. Only they had the Rocky, um, soundtrack on, (laughs) on record. And my brothers were really, really little. This is like before I was even born. Okay. So my mom who God bless her, but she's got a really fucking hot temper. Anyway, (laughs) my brothers, it was when they, it was when they lived in Tyler, Texas. Um, My brothers are listening to this, you know, getting stronger, Mm na-na-na-na, and they're running laps around the fucking house, and they're, like, jumping in and out of the bathtub and, like, doing pull-ups and shit, and my mom finally cracked, and she ran into their room and snatched that fucking record off their player and broke it, like, BAP, like, broke it on the fucking dresser. Left my brothers in, I, like, oh my god, and just, like buckle to their knees my mom felt so fucking bad about it later that she drove around trying to find a replacement and never did the only thing she could find was the soundtrack on record to rocky Three.
1: not the same mom it's totes different
0: way to go asshole
1: my mom has one of those i don't know where she got it because she likes vintage shopping Mm -hmm. but she has one of those and my kids play with it and i'm like oh it's so cute
0: everybody had one like there were certain things that you just had to have as a youngster Uh, and those little record players were one of them and mm -hmm. if you didn't have one your parents didn't love you Mm -hmm.
1: just saying just so if you ever question if you were loved as a child Mm -hmm. base it on the fact of if you had one of these record players certain toys yeah
0: if your parents loved you there were certain things that you would have
1: we can make a list
0: yep (laughs) i'm going to one of the nurses from the station that had heard the music that started playing in David's room popped her head into this room, and she's like, what's with all the racket? <laughs> and she had given the room kind of a disapproving look. Marie was pretty much prepared to go to war with the nurses at this point because this was like the one thing that was making her son happy. You don't like it? Fight me, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'd have been like, square the fuck up. <laughs> um, anyway, Marie was pretty much like, anybody that tries to touch this top wow, anybody that tries to touch this tape player is going to feel the back of my hand. And um, it had, you know, Marie was like, hey, this has been cleared by the doctors, and we were told that we could play music as part of his therapies. And, you know, the doctors often breeze in out of the rooms, and they don't really spend as much time with the patients, obviously, Mm -hmm. as the nurses do. You know this. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, the nurses that were making their rounds and everything she didn't want to pick fights and be shitty with the women and men that were taking care of her son that you know basically ended up being like family to her in the end yeah but she was like we're listening to music and it's never coming off like get used to it well (laughs) learn how to tune it out or fuck off i don't care like don't listen So, and I mean, these the nurses were David's real support system, and they were the ones that, you know, did his wound care management, kept his IVs in, you know, they were the ones that took him for his whirlpool bath, and, you know, all of these things that are just, you know, you don't really realize how much nurses do until you're in the hospital and...
1: I had a nurse once. This doesn't have to do with anything that they do for us, but I dropped a sucker and you're all hemmed. I was all hemmed up and shit. So I couldn't move to pick it up by myself. She picks it up off the floor and put it on my nose. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? I just looked at her like, you fucking serious. She's like, what'd you do? And like popped on my nose. I was like, I don't think I like you anymore. Like, bitch, wash that off and put it back in my mouth. (laughs) Fuck. I was like, I dropped it and
0: I couldn't reach it to pick it back up because I can't get out of my bed. (laughs) Like at this particular juncture, I'd even be satisfied if you just licked it off and gave it back. Right? Why'd you got to stick it to my nose? I know. I was like,
1: that was so awkward. Like, I think she felt that it was awkward afterwards, but I was like, I don't like it. Just don't do that.
0: Yeah. Could you? Could you not? Maybe. Yeah do that that's that's great don't do that no so david couldn't talk he couldn't laugh he couldn't wink you know he couldn't use any of those little boyish charms Mm -hmm. to con the nurses right now and she was sitting there watching this tiny weird little bundle of gauze that's like he's kind of bouncing to the music and he's twisting and he's trying to dance but you know i can only imagine what he looked like Mm -hmm. you know And all, you know, all these tunes are just, like, bouncing off the halls and going up and down, like, kind of filling every room. And so the nurse just shrugged, and she started singing with them. You know, and it's a small world after all. There is just one moon and one golden sun, and a smile means friendship to every... Dude, see, I get wapy just thinking about it. I would have been, like, twerking it out and doing shit, you know.
1: Why not? I'll dance with you. I only twerk because my kids get mad at me, and I think it's hilarious. I get mad at you. It's so worth every bit of everybody getting mad at me. Because I don't ever twerk like serious twerk. Like trying to be sexy. Nope. I only twerk to piss people off. It's because twerking's not sexy. It's
0: not. (laughs) Nothing about that. That's why I get so irritated when I see it. I'm just like, God, stop. But it is a
1: talent, I tell you. Trying to do some of the shit that those girls do is harder than it looks.
0: I don't want to do that shit.
1: It makes me laugh.
0: Yucky. So anyway, <laughs> um, at one point in time, every nurse and doctor and the and like even the visitors that were in the ICU are singing along to the music, and it's filling all the halls. Everybody's being, you know singing. It's a small world after all. There was never a moment following that that music wasn't playing in David's room. It played twenty four hours a day, and in many oops. It was the first time in many, many days that David had something to fill his mind. Stop and think about this. He can't close his eyes Mm -mm. because they had to remove his eyelids, remember? Mm -hmm. He can't even blink. He's Mm -mm. got no eyelids. He can't talk. Mm -mm. He can't move. He can't Mm -mm. walk. So you just have to sit there all day with your fucking eyes open. I'd go crazy Uh uh-huh i would go bananas
1: yeah so the music started playing he was probably like thank
0: jesus a a little break in what i'm assuming for me would be hell Mm um (laughs) this was the only thing that marie had to give him to help him with his struggles and kind of find a way to give him hope and cope with all of the shit that he was having to go through Um, And I think this was kind of the only thing that made it all right in the meantime. So Dr. Aukauer had pulled Marie aside later that day and was basically telling him, like, no, everything is not all right. In fact, everything's getting worse.
1: He told her, we've run out of time. The medical team had had to start the grafting process where the skin had been burned away. But they couldn't start until David was stabilized and the body wouldn't start doing that without skin. It was the, like, worst case of damned if you do, damned if you don't Oh, yeah, situation. like the worst
0: catch-22 yeah, fucking like,
1: ever. Yeah, like, we need to do this so that this will be better, but we can't do that till this is better, so fuck. Mm-hmm.
0: Fact.
1: There were a lot of factors that contributed to the postponement of the grafting. Everything from David's lungs, still sloughing skin, to the ventilator, um, to the swelling from the fluids and the incisions to let the pressure out, the tubes draining, the stomach, the catheters taking the waste out and putting nutrients in. David's kidneys were constantly threatening to shut down. There simply wasn't enough fluid in the body to keep them working properly because, like, Mm -hmm. it just sucks it out no matter how fast they pump it in. The delays had been delayed too long. The grafting couldn't wait any longer. The grafting had had to start today, and worse was the fact that they had 10 percent of healthy skin to work with from David's living tissues. Marie asked if the skin from others could be used. Was it possible? The doctors advised that only David's skin could be used; otherwise, his body would reject the skin. My dad actually asked them the same question when I was in there. Mine wasn't near as bad. I had plenty of I had plenty of healthy skin to graft from, but he right. didn't want me to go through any more than I already did. So he's like, take my skin. Just take mine. You can have it. And they were like, no, sorry, we can't. It won't. No. Dr. Ockhauer explained that most burn victims still have large areas to harvest healthy skin from. This was not the case for David. The doctor's beeper went off, alerting him to surgery, yet he didn't rush away. Not before giving Marie a look. Dr. Ockhauer had been trying to tell Marie in a short time that grafting could kill David. No grafting would kill David. <laughs> Jeez. Let's let's make a good decision here. He had tried to warn her of the tricky nature of what was about to happen. Marie had resolved to let God take the wheel. Jesus take the wheel. What is that song?
0: I don't know. That's literally the name of the song. Yeah.
1: You know what I'm saying? She shrugged at the doctor and said, "Good luck." And with that the doctor was gone. Marie had gone to John, trying to keep herself from crying, and asked what day it was. John told her it was Sunday. Marie then said she wanted to go to church, and this was the first time in decades she felt that she needed to go to a house of worship. John was confused by this request and asked Marie, are you sure? David's going into surgery. Don't you want to be here? Marie knew that her choice to go to church might be an odd thing to him since he, since she didn't regularly attend in the first place. Marie told John that there was nothing that they could do while Davey was in surgery. So they might as well wait in church. Marie and John had found officer Terry Branham and asked for the location of a nearby church. Officer Branham was hesitant to let Marie go off campus away from David.
0: The officer had been aside to stay very close to Marie that day. And the surgical team had come to him and told him, you don't leave her side no matter what, no matter where you go, you have to be with her. Um, You might be the one that's delivering that horrible news that Davey didn't make it. The officer agreed that he would take them to church. There was a church right around the corner, just a few blocks from the medical center, and that he would bring a squad car to take them and then have a squad car follow. The officer also advised that they were going to have to make a statement to the press soon. And every day... The press would gather around the hospital. They lingered in the lobbies and they were all trying to catch a glimpse of Marie or the child that had made the front page, front page news. Officer Branham told Marie that she didn't have to talk to the press that day, but she was going to have to make a statement and a make an like make an appearance soon. They had questions and they wanted to speak directly to her. They didn't want to talk to the officers and the press wanted to get um they they basically wanted to get like Marie's perspective of everything of everything. Ha! Of, everything. Ha, of everything. everything. So not only did they want to know about Davy, but they had questions about Charles as well. Marie had no way to answer all of the questions that the people had. She didn't even know the answers herself for a lot of the questions she knew they would ask. People wanted to know whether or not David was going to live or die, and she had no answer to that. They wanted to know what he was going to look like in the future. How the how the hell would she know? You know, her kid doesn't have eyelids. He doesn't have a nose, lips. She has zero idea of what's going to become of his face. Um... You know, she didn't even know if she was going to be able to support herself and him. And what about when David got older? Was he going to be able to live on his own? Nobody knew. Yeah. Uh, you know, was he going to ever, was he ever going to marry? Was somebody ever going to love him? Was he ever going to have children? I mean, these are all things that.
1: Or was he going to be somebody that stays at her house like she's going to have endless caregiving to him? Right.
0: And, you know, when people ask those questions, and you yourself have been pondering those day and night, and you don't have answers, Mm -hmm. it kind of like, do you ever, okay, this is me personally, and I assume that other people do it as well. Do you ever start questioning certain things in your life, and you don't have answers? And then when somebody else asks you, you get mad at them for asking, like, what business of that is yours? (laughs) Really, And you're not really mad, you just don't fucking have answers like I've, I've been thinking the same thing and i do that all the
1: time because with things that i've been going through i'm like i don't know
0: the fuck do i know yeah i don't know the answer to this why why are you asking me you're hey, like shit man when i find out i'll let you know and then we can both fucking find out together it'll be awesome Mm-hmm. Officer Brenham had pushed his way past the reporters and he was telling all of them that they would talk to him later as he was escorting Marie and John out of the building. They got into a, a, a waiting police cruiser that would take them to the church, but that didn't stop the reporters from giving chase. And it was basically carloads of reporters followed him to this Catholic church. Marie chose to sit in the very back of the room. And she actually told all of the officers, like, we're going to sit back here out of the way so that if anything happens and we need to leave suddenly, we won't make, you know, we won't make a scene. We won't make any like a ruckus. (laughs) Can you describe the
1: ruckus?
0: (laughs) Uh, And basically was just like, hey, you know, if if anything, you know, if anything goes down, we'll just we'll we'll sneak out. Before Marie had left the hospital to go to the church, she had seen David be wheeled past her as he was going to surgery. He was asleep at the time, he wasn't conscious, and he wouldn't know that his mother wasn't in the hospital. Now, she entered that church with one thought on her mind that day, and it was whether or not she'd see her son alive again. They had warned her that a lot of these surgeries were going to be incredibly tricky, and any surgery could be life-threatening to him at this point. yeah. Uh, The congregation that day came together to pray and the whole room completed the kiss of peace and the Lamb of God. And Marie didn't, she was going to church because she had found this like newfound comfort in prayer thanks to Ken and Judy Curtis. But she didn't really relate to any of the words that were happening in mass that day. The sacrament made no difference to her. The words were basically just like, Background noise. All she could hear was like what the doctors had been telling her echoing through her brain. Dr. Ockhauer told her that they would have to get the hardened layers of dead skin that had burned on the outside off of David for the graft to hold. They had to get down to the burned layers under the fat where the blood was still flowing. They had two ways that they could do this procedure. They could shave away at the layers until they hit the bloody tissues. And this was a very tricky procedure because, you know, too much bleeding, the graft won't take. And the other option, and maybe the wisest way to go, was to put David under, remove everything down to the muscle. This would take all of the damaged tissue, and it would be quicker, easier, and hopefully less bleeding. I know.
1: Dr. Ockhauer had explained how the graft would be done. Marie had been shown the tool that would be rolled over the live tissue to peel a layer of the skin only one one hundredth thick to cover the damaged area. She was also shown the other tool that placed tiny holes into the skin to create mesh out of the skin, helping it stretch three times its size to cover more area. Now, when you're nine years old and burned Don't show... They showed me the same stuff. I was like, why would you do that? Can't we just leave this a mystery and I don't know what happened? You just made it worse. Don't (laughs) do that. Also, if you've seen Red Sparrow, they used that thingy, the skin scraper. Mm -hmm. I almost threw up. When I was watching, I was like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Because they used it as a torture device, which it is. As the priest continued with his sacrament, Marie wondered if David was getting the skin placed on his body. Had they already cut away the blackened burned skin? The choir had begun to sing while Marie drifted away deeper into the recess of her mind. Tiny blood vessels would circulate life into the new grafts. David's system would sense the skin and help it to grow. The skin would gradually creep across and grow together. This was the only chance for David to have a life after death, so to speak. Marie accepted the sacrament, quote, for new life, the priest told her. Marie had trouble keeping tears from her eyes, and she nodded and repeated, for new life. That was my quote. That was the pause. Mm. (laughs) Just so you know. Okay. Okay. The prayers ended and the priest blessed the crowd, telling them to go in peace. There was no news from the hospital. Officer Branham took Marie and John back to the medical center. The ride had been quiet until John decided to speak. He was hesitant to bring up the topic of him returning to New York. It was a delicate subject, as you can imagine, because she, you know, you know. You know I have to go back tomorrow, John started telling Marie. She nodded and told him that she knew. She wasn't sure that she was going to be able to do all of this without him there to support her. Soon she would be alone. She would be alone in the hotel room. She would be going back and forth by herself. She would be sitting alone, waiting alone, and eating alone. There was only one occasional visitor with her. On top of everything, she didn't know how she would pay the thousands and thousands in medical bills. She didn't know how she'd keep up on regular bills or if she would even have a, still have a job when she got home. How was she going to pay for the apartment? Her mind raced through a million troubles before coming back to the fact that her beloved beloved fiance would be departing tomorrow.
0: Officer Branham took the couple back through the lobby, back through the waiting area for news of, news of David's first graph. Ken and Judy Curtis were there and they had been waiting for Marie to tre- to retur- to, mm-hmm, to return as well <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I can see you over there just like <laughs> you're silently heaving. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Fuck you, don't Fuck, Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. They greeted Marie and John and they gave them big tight hugs. How is he, Marie asked no one. The way that I type that, I'm like, huh? Maybe I'm just really tired. Fuck. How is he? as she's speaking to the wall how is he i'm really fucking tired and i'm hoping somebody around here is listening I think it was more of that thing, like where she's standing there with other people yeah. and she says, How is he? Like the doctors are going to come out and tell them. But it was more just like her absent mindedly making noise out of her mouth. But
1: not saying it to anyone, but asking anyone that's around her is what I got out right. of it.
0: There had been no updates as of yet. The doctors hadn't even come out. They had just barely finished. The four of them stood talking about John's departure and Judy offered to have Marie come and stay in their home. Marie was really shocked at the offer to to move into the couple's home. She hadn't known them very long. She barely knew them at all, really. Marie had no clue how long she was going to be there or how long it was going to be before she got to go home. And they were, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're basically strangers. And, um, you know, she was very thankful and she, she continued to to tell them how grateful she was for the offer, but was declining. Well, Ken and Judy were pretty much just brushing off the refusals. The doctor had come to give him the update on David. He said that the graft was in place. There had been no incidents during the procedure, and David was okay for the moment. Dr. Ockhauer had told them that there was still so much that could go wrong. I mean, multitudes so much all the many's could go wrong. The medical team just couldn't say any more than that. And Marie wanted to know if he was gonna make it. The doctor just shrugged and like shook his head like fuck fino. Mm-hmm. And he had no idea, nobody had any idea if he was gonna live or die. He said, All I can tell you is in a few days, if the graft is holding, that's it. I can tell you that the antibiotics will antibiotics. Antibiotics. The antibiotics. <laughs> um, I can tell you that the antibiotics will start fighting any infections. I can tell you that the swelling is going to go down, and I can tell you right now that the lungs are healing themselves. We have a catheter in to monitor his heart and another one in his lungs, and now we wait. Ken and Judy waited for the doctor to leave before offering their hands in prayer, and John and Marie had ac- had accepted. Judy began to pray, and Marie said that she was one of those women that when she prayed, she prayed hard, and she prayed earnestly. She had a way about her that was, you know... She meant everything that she said, and she said it with such honesty and such passion that it struck Marie, you know, this whole prayer thing was very new to her, but it made her feel better. Probably, she probably
1: is the kind that uses all the words that get you right in the feels too, where you're like,
0: oh my God. Where you're like, that burning in your bosom that you cannot deny. You're like, yes, I feel it. I feel that. Yeah, that's called anxiety. Yeah, it's called anxiety. (laughs) That's not God. That's your heart. Oh, I thought it was heartburn. (laughs) Uh, That was a dickhead thing to say, God.
1: It was. We're dickheads.
0: I am a dickhead. You're welcome. (laughs) And if you don't like me, you can join the legions on following me on Facebook. <laughs> Start a hate page. I don't care. I don't give a fuck. Um, Judy prayed, and she prayed honestly, and she pray, she prayed earnestly, and she meant everything that she said. She was one of those prayers that she uses all the buzzwords to make you feel the power of Christ compel you.
1: May the power <clears throat> of Christ compel you. You're healed. You're healed. You can see now.
0: I wasn't blind. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Kai. I wasn't blind. I came for you about my erectile dysfunction. You're healed. <laughs> <laughs> It struck Marie as odd that someone who barely knew her and her son would feel so deeply for them. When they had completed their prayers, Judy again brought up the offer for Marie to come and stay at the the Curtis home. Marie continued to decline their graciousness. And I could see how that would be really weird, honestly. You've been in California. You've been in Southern California for all of like a week, right? Everything in your life is literally topsy-turvy. Nothing fucking makes sense anymore. But, you know, she's gone from you know, single working mother in New York to now she's cooped up in the burn unit with her toasted son. Uh, They finally have her husband, ex-husband behind bars. You've got this couple of people that showed up out of nowhere like, we prayed our way into your lives. It sounds weird. And they're like, come live with us, Marie. Rent free, bill free, as long as you need. Come live with us. (laughs) And um, I, so,
1: uh, what part of my skin will you be wearing
0: right did you want to <laughs> harvest my organs in or out of your spare room
1: do you have the jars ready right though, for all of my parts to be in
0: well and it's it's just one of those things where you know it i could see where she's like you know this is weird and i'm like yeah you know i, I get it this is a little fucking weird Ken and Judy had assured Marie that there was plenty of room, that there were no nobody was going to object to her staying there. Um, they have this great big huge house up in the hills, and they you know they were like, "You can come, you can come long term, you can stay as long as you need." And while the hotel bills are piling up, and I'm sure that the end amount would be staggering, yes. even in the '80s, I could see how you know, Marie's like, I, it's cool. I'll just let the bills keep keep coming.
1: Yeah, I don't know you, so. Right.
0: So, so it's like when you're, like, looking for a reason to hang up the phone and mm-hmm. somebody keeps talking. And you're looking around, at like, what can I knock off my counter so it sounds like an emergent situation in which I need to get off the phone right now.
1: I have kids, so I'm like, so- God damn it, I got to go. They just fucking, fuck. And Addison cries all the time, too. So I'm like, fuck, she's
0: cry- I don't know. I got to go gotta go take care of this <laughs> Marie told John that she didn't want to stay with the Curtis family and John asked her why and he so it was this kind of a situation where you've got these really amazing people offering you a small piece of their heaven come stay at our house rent free bill free not a big deal long term not a big deal and Marie's like no no can't do this and John's like why like what is what what is your problem You're so Marie finally like buckles and all of the fears that she was feeling come just spilling out of her mouth she's like okay what if they're part of what if they're part of a cult you know because like jim and she she legitimately brought up jim jones she's like we are in california and what about the manson family and they seem like nice people until they want to like cut out your tongue And she's going on about, you know, they're really nice people and they're really easy to talk to, but maybe this is because they're part of a cult and they make people believe that what they believe and then they go to their house and people are never seen again and that's why I can't stay with them.
1: I know to other people that might sound like she's crazy, but I would do the same fucking thing. Sleep deprived or not? I'd be like, I don't know. Because what if they are like that? Have you ever seen the following With Kevin Bacon in it? Um, It was a TV show. I think it was on Netflix. I don't Uh, think... It's it's not ringing any bells. It's like Edgar Allan Poe, like, driven. Okay. But everybody is in this cult. Okay. And everybody is bad, basically. So people that he thinks he knows and he's known for a long time are in this whole cult thingy and they murder everybody. Anyway, that's what it made me think of was, Mm -hmm. like... What if everybody's against me?
0: I, well, and, you know, I, I get it. Especially if you're, like, struggling with your emotions any goddamn way. And probably hasn't slept at oh, all. at all. Like, sorry. You, no sleeps for you. None. None. You get no sleeps.
1: You don't get any of them. None. John, like most normal people, was absolutely shocked with her sudden rants of cults or flavor aid. I am clearly not a normal person because I'm like, I get it. Like, I see where you're coming from. She then went into a whole new rant of fears. What if they knew Charles? What if they were somehow connected to the man that was responsible for all of this? What if they had meant to get closer to her so they could finish what Charles started? Which that's what made me think of the following because basically what it is. (coughs) Well, what I saw of it. I didn't see it all because I got scared because I'm chicken shit. And this was like a long time ago. This was years ago when everything still scared me. John was convinced that his sweetheart needed to get out of that hospital. She was starting to crack. John and Marie went for a walk in the Southern California sun. This could take months upon months and there was no telling how deep the bills were going to get. Marie was going to need people she was going to need the supportive type like Ken and Judy. There was no telling what the insurance was going to pay and the daily cost for Davey was over $3,000, and that was just to keep him alive. Um like nowadays it's we can rack up 20,000 in a day at the ER, but I'm sure his ER bills were <clears throat> fucking insane cuz he had ER and ICU, trauma. Yeah. So mm-hmm. his ER, oh my God. So many. So many All the monies. monies. All, All the, the monies. You could dude. probably buy a pretty nice house with what his bills were at this time. Not even what they ended up being. John laughed. How many murderers do you know that go around praying for people? Besides, how do they know you aren't the murderer? Well, and there probably are a lot of murderers that pray with people and I don't know. We don't know. Marie agreed to accept the help that had been offered. She approached Judy and said that if they would still have her, she would like to come and stay on one condition. Marie's brother, Rich, was coming soon. She would, er, He would need a place to stay, too. Judy and Ken were happy to room him, too. Yet another helping hand reached out to Marie that day. Apparently, California was full of hospitable folks.
0: <clears throat> they, Seriously, though.
1: Yeah, they offered Marie a car to use while she was there with Davey. Peggy and Ken Schmidt drove three hours to Irvine to deliver their car to her. They told her that it was a second car and to use it as long as she needed. Marie was floored. She could barely hail a cab in Brooklyn, and now she has people giving her cars in California to use.
0: Yeah, we drove three hours. Um, separately, so that we could bring you this spare car that we have. Keep it and use it as much as you want. We don't know you, and you don't know us, but enjoy this car. Yeah,
1: have have.
0: Since sticks. when do people have fucking... Yeah,
1: I know. The brakes stick a little bit, but the other than that, it's fine. Keep it. Marie's brother, Rich, arrived. They drove to the Curtis home on the hillside in Fullerton. A nervous Marie asked her brother, who sat beside her in the borrowed car, Where are they going to take us? The road had been long and winding up the California country. Marie was scared. She thought that The Dark Road was something out of a horror movie that Hitchcock had written.
0: Dude, Alfred Hitchcock movies fucked with me as a kid. I'm over here, ner- like, laughing nervously about it. The and then I'm like, Birds, I fucking hated that movie. It actually, that movie still, like, when I see really large flocks of birds i panic like a motherfucker i
1: saw it in 3d at universal studio no yeah no. no 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 no, yeah. no 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 it was not okay i'm like mom why did you think this was okay i don't think it's okay
0: i don't like it i it it, it does i still I uh, <laughs> have it wow when the swallows are nesting and they're like or the what are they called the starlings that mm-hmm. come in the huge huge groups yeah where and they're like <laughs> whoosh, whoosh i'm like nope fuck this i'm going back in the house i don't give a shit unless this house catches fire i ain't leaving again till they're gone they followed the Curtises through the iron gate to their lavish and lush property Pre- <laughs> i'm not even sure what the oh. fuck i just said dude Fuck off. All right. They followed the Curtis's through an iron gate to their lavish and lush property. I can't stay here, Rich. This is way too fancy for me. This is what she's thinking as she's looking at their home. Mm-hmm. Well, her brother, you know, he's sitting there smiling and he assures her that everything is going to be, o- everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And at the end of the day, she could always move back out and go back to the hotel, you know. You and go back to the Roach Motel. You can go back to the no-tell motel. Everything will be fine. So they had what she was used to seeing. Remember when we talked about Carol Gardens in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and their small apartment on the fifth floor? They had, the has had this great big Spanish-style home, and it was full of, like, finer oil paintings and rugs. They had, um, like oak and cherry furniture and they had like silk drapes and things that when you walk it's you you know when you walk into that one friend's house and they have white carpet and you see it as you come in and you're like oh you're all like that y'all are those people like your mom's house
1: Uh uh-huh yeah i'm surprised she doesn't have white carpet but her floor you can't she has travertine that the tile that's in the kitchen is mm-hmm. travertine. So if you spill anything with any kind of acid in it, it eats it up. I'm like, why would you put that on the floor? I'm like, concrete floors. Let's put a drain in the middle and we'll just fucking pressure wash that shit out. Dude, that's
0: why I want to put epoxy floors down in my uh-huh. house. Like, fuck this. Squeegee it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> with the drain in the middle. I'll right. Shit. Hell yeah. <sighs> okay. uh, They had... So on their property they also had a swimming pool, they had basketball court. Um, and when she walked into their house, their home had a lot of like brand new electronics mm-hmm. or what would be considered a
1: TV with a remote in the eighties.
0: <laughs> right? They had VCRs, yes, they new did. ones uh but anyway when you walk into somebody's home and you you see that they have like a nice big tv that came in its own entertainment c- center you know what i mean those, those i want one of those again yeah but anyway they probably they,
1: had those big stereos you know which ones i'm talking fuck about. yeah like the all the different ones and they're like as tall as you are and then mm-hmm. the speakers are as tall as you are
0: where it's got like the flip top lid full of shit yep you need four adult men to move it when you
1: mm-hmm. need to vacuum behind
0: it. Yeah, right. Marie was sharing a two bedroom mother in law apartment with Ken's mom. Rich was going to be staying downstairs. Marie ended up in this. So Ken and Judy built this really nice little two bedroom, one bathroom. Mother-in-law apartment for Mm -hmm. Ken's mom to come and live. And the mother-in-law, who has never met her, grandma, is like, come. Come share this space with me. Yes,
1: that's not violating whatsoever. We're going to share a bathroom, okay? Okay.
0: So she goes, and she, she gets settled in into the upper level of this home where this mother-in-law apartment is and her brother's sleeping downstairs. And in the beginning, she really didn't want to be that far away from her brother. And Judy had come to her and been like, listen, you have been through a lot. You are dealing with a lot. What you need is some quiet and some privacy. If you get upset, you can always come downstairs to him. But why don't you chill the fuck out? Like go to your room, take a shower, put on some jammies, and like take some melatonin. Fucking chill out. Huff some glue. Whatever I don't know what you. you need. Whatever you need to do. Um, so she did. She went in there and she actually ended her night with a prayer. And um she was asking for her safety as well as her son's, which I think is really funny. She's up there like, dear blonde hair, blue eyed, diaper wearing, baby Jesus, so omnipotent. Please don't let the Curtis family put me in a dried up water well and force me to put lotion on my skin. Amen.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, Amen. <laughs> like, I don't think she's crazy in those thoughts. Like, I totally relate to her. That is how my brain works,
0: too. So I, <clears throat> I honestly... I have gotten to this stage of my life, and it actually happened when I took my Euro trip. When I took my Euro trip and I was like, fuck it, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm taking all my money and my fucking backpack, and I'm going on a trip. And I might not come back, but that's okay. And I might fucking not. No, I I totally had every intention of coming back because I didn't take my dog. Oh, and if I was going to go somewhere forever, you better goddamn believe that I'd have had that dog with me.
1: Well, I just meant you might not come back, you might get murdered and you're oh, okay with it. that.
0: Well, I've made my peace with it. Right? If that's how like, I go, that's how I go. If I Like that scene out of Rocky, if he dies, he dies. Yes. The next morning, the Curtis family gets up and it's uh Ken and Judy and they have two kids, a boy and a girl. And then uh Marie and Rich come down and they join them and they they start talking about What happened with Ken and his burns? And you know, Marie had been commenting on the you know you have a lovely home and wow, this must you know be a fortune and you know all those things that you probably shouldn't say because they're wildly inappropriate because you're hinting at somebody's monetary right substance (laughs) substance Mm. fucking I'm not an addict. (laughs) Anyway, so they're sitting around and they're all talking about, you know, the house and everything in it. And Ken and Judy look at her and she's like, you know, a few months ago, we almost lost this house. And so, of course, Marie looking around at this beautiful home way up in the hills, full of things. um, She's wanting to know. She's like, what do you mean you almost lost your house? Well, they start talking about how Ken got burned. And when he was burned... There, so he works as an independent contractor, and when he was out recovering from his burns, if you're not out working, there's no income coming in, mm-hmm. and so they were falling behind on their bills. They almost lost their house. Their cars were up, like they were almost up for repossession. Luckily, they knew enough people to help them out. Their church put together a jogathon where they would. They went out. Do you remember? Did you ever do those in school where you did like the the Mm walkathons and you'd go get sponsors and they'd be like, I'll give you 25 cents for every lap or I'll give you a dollar for every lap. So they basically organized a -a jogathon and they all went out and got sponsors. And then the whole church did these laps or whatever. And they ended up raising $15,000 to help them. And as soon as Ken could get back to work, they had pretty much put out the, oh, God, get get all up in that microphone. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, as soon as Ken could work again, they pretty much sent out the SOS to all of their clients. And then their clients put it out to their friends and family, basically stating that, like, he's been cleared to work and he wants to work. He needs the work. Who's got work? Mm-hmm. You don't have work, make work for this guy. He needs the work, okay? Well, it's... <laughs> Seriously, when when somebody has just suffered massive third-degree burns, and they're on the mend, and they're like, okay, I'm ready to go back to work, that's pretty awesome. You know? Because some people get hurt, and they're like, I'm just going to sit in my chair and die. Yeah. I know a lot of people like that. I feel like that a <clears throat> lot of times. And then Sometimes then you're like, I do. Step out of it, motherfucker. You know what really upsets me because I catch myself doing it sometimes when I'm having really bad flare-ups and I lay in bed and I don't go anywhere and I don't do anything is my mother had her health go downhill so fast when everybody was like, no, 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 you don't. You need to rest. You're sick. And people kept telling her, like the doctors, my father, like... Everybody was like, "No, no, no, it's okay because you're sick. You don't need to get up and do this because you're sick. You don't have to go downstairs and do that because you're sick." And I think that she let that like soak into her soul. Like, if you pretty soon, like, especially when my mom started to regress mentally, she would be like, "You can't make me. I'm sick." I'm like, "There is nothing fucking wrong with you right here, right now. You're fully capable of doing."
1: All of these things. Yeah, there's some. Well, te- <clears throat> with me, there's sometimes that I am. Um, I like I physically can't do things. No, I understand. And then you get so used to it that you're like you get lazy. But then when you pull out of it, you have to like push yourself and make yourself yeah. do it. And it's the shittiest, hardest thing ever is having to pull out of it every two months. Right. Like, no, pulling I get out it. of it is so hard. Like my I am God. sore from mowing the lawn. Everything in my body is sore because I mowed the fucking lawn. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I feel like. Some people get diagnosed with illness or some people have really bad accidents and while they're in a, in the middle of a flare up of some sort of chronic illness or they're recovering from an injury and people go and do and be and see for them and then when they can they don't because they mm-hmm. haven't and they've allowed that like and it's hard to mentally pull out of it too oh, no. like it's it's hard I know so, when they were talking about how Ken got burned, because <clears throat> they had basically said, you know, oh, he was using chemicals, and, you know, the chemical caught fire, caught him on fire. Marie had, like, the basic synopsis of how Ken had been burned, but Rich didn't know. Yeah. And they're all standing around, and he, you know, he had showed us scars and everything else, and so Rich was like, how exactly did you get burned? He was like, what exactly happened to you? Ken said we were putting a coating on a bowling alley with a liquid that strengthens and beautifies the wood, and it keeps it keeps it from getting damaged by the bowling balls. So the alley was open 24 hours a day, and they were in there at midnight, and they were doing the job, um, like trying to miss the big crowds that come in, like for league bowling, yeah. or that come in at night. Well. The manufacturer that made the coating liquid had assured them that it was non-flammable. In fact, they had actually told Ken that they could use a propane torch to speed up the drying. Well. No. After they had laid down this finish onto the floor, a worker was drying the area at one end of the alley, and Ken was on the other end, like, continuing to coat. And... Suddenly, the fumes ignited, the entire area burst into flames, and it was basically like a wall of fire rolled down the alley and ate him up and set him on fire. So at that particular juncture, he, like, Ken caught flame, and he was running through the lobby like his clothes were burning off of him, and that's when the woman that helped him tackled him down. He's like trying to rip burning clothing off of his body. And let's face facts, dude. it's The 80s, you know that shit was not a natural fiber. Mhm. It was probably a nylon poly blend. That's what mine was. That just sticks to your skin like napalm. Yep, that's exactly what That's exactly what, mine what it was. fucking does.
1: Yeah, cuz mine stuck mine
0: was stuck to my skin. Ugh. God, that's a horrifying fucking thought. And then, so the woman tackles him, and she had thrown something over the top of him and, like, snuffed out the flames. So 10 minutes later, after the paramedics were there and they were, like, pouring the, what is it, the saline solution all over him, mm-hmm. the ambulance had come and rushed him into Sherman Oaks Burn Center, and that's where he was for the next two months. <clears throat> and at that moment, that was when Marie was like, um, Richard, you ready to go? Because I think that she was already uncomfortable, They've stayed the night. She wants to go see her son. And then they're talking about his accident and his burn. And I think it was just a lot for her to process. Mm -hmm. She was like, fuck, enough small talk. Like, we're not talking about your burns. We're not talking about bowling alleys. Like, take me to see my son. So they put on their shoes, get in the borrowed car, and drive to the burn unit. On the way there, Marie and Rich are kind of, um, going back and forth. And she's like, you know, I really just don't think I can stay in their home. These people have enough problems of their own. Like he's only been back to work a few, a few months. You know, I'm sure they're still trying to take care of their own problems, let alone my problems. And that's when Rich and, uh, Rich and Marie arrived at the burn center and Rich turns to her and he's like, okay, well, if, if you think that you need to move out, then move out and like walked away from her okay like i don't want to sit and listen to you nitpick whine and boob when you know it must be really hard for you to stay in a mother-in-law apartment in a multi-million dollar home like calm down for free what for free for free with your borrowed car That somebody donated. For free. For free. You like for free. They were met by Officer Branham out front and he had stopped Marie and was trying to persuade her to actually go in and talk to the press. And she had been putting it off and putting it off. And he's like, listen, I realize that I am the head of police department press shit, but they don't want to talk to me. They want to talk to you. And you really need to make time to do this. And Marie was like, okay, I will talk to them. Just not right now. And she... Basically, bolts. She was like, Can't you go and give the updates? And he's like, Yeah, I can, but they want to hear from you. They really need to see you. And she's like, Awesome. Later. mirror And no. bolts. She goes in and she is met by the, the head nurse, Sue Martinez, before she goes in to see David. And he's just barely getting out of his bath for the day. Sue told Marie that his vitals were holding and that he was doing okay. The doctors had scheduled another scope for his, uh, like the bronchioscope, to check his lungs. She said that the graft looked really good and that his coughing had slowed down. Sue told Marie that she felt really encouraged by his state. They gowned up, and they went in to see David. Now, Marie didn't know if her child was asleep or not. Remember, he doesn't have eyelids. Mm -hmm. So when he's asleep, you don't know until he doesn't respond. Uh, Yeah, dude. So let that fucking... I wonder what they did for his eyeballs. Did they have to just keep dripping? uh You... Basically, what they would have to do for his eyes is he... he, uh, Every now and again, his eyes would have to be shielded with probably like... um, I envision the old lady blue blockers mm-hmm. to keep, like, any light. You, because if you... Okay, um, you know what a flash burn is, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Fuck. F- those fucking hurt. I got uh, my welding ones. You was. can get those from those. Just mm-hmm. regular lights. You, like, you don't even have to get them from, like, arc welding and shit. Um, so anyway, they would have to cover his eyes and, and keep them under, like, a protective visor to keep him from getting... Flash burns. But then every day, all day, it was either re-wetting solution in his eyes, or have you ever seen, like, the... um, They actually make, it's like Vaseline for your eyes. Oh. To help... I just made my eyes water. (laughs) Oh, I love that shit. It feels so good. When... So if I wear my contacts too many days in a row without like pulling them out and letting my eyes breathe, they'll get really, really dry and irritated and it can actually like rough up the surface of my eye. Well, I have this shit. It's like Neosporin for my eye. And you just squeeze a big glob in there and close your eye and rub your finger around and it, you you can't see for fuck all. You gotta, you gotta go to bed and close your eyes after that. But when you wake up, it's amazing. It
1: sounds horrifying.
0: Feels really good. So, she had no idea if her son was actually sleeping, and she bent over and asked David if he were awake and said hello. David responded by making those same gurgling and like growling, you know, noises that he had made before, and she had to remind him again to try not to speak, but that he could, like, nod or move his arms to let her know that he was paying attention, he was awake. He had grown really impatient at this point because... It's it hurts and it's still causing damage for him to try and speak. But could you could you imagine? Could you, if you had been sitting there and all these people are talking around you and you're six years old and you can't talk
1: or do anything or even tell him that you need to? Well, he doesn't need to, but. Even tell him, like, I it's right here. Can you can, can you lend nothing. me a hand? Could you scratch it? Even though you're not supposed to touch him. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. nothing. You get nothing. Can we change the music? I don't like this shit. Can yeah. we do something? Like, can you read me a book? I don't I, like nothing. Daddy
0: Yankee. I wanted Pitbull. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she, so she's constantly having to remind David that he can't try and speak just yet. And he's like, Ugh. Marie had put on some music. Um, for David and when the lyrics started playing she realized that it was a bunch of little kids singing about Jesus and she looked at the cassettes and realized that Ken and Judy had gotten a bunch of cassette tapes and brought in for David I thought that was really sweet that they had brought in like some devotionals like different music for him to have so that he wasn't listening to the same you know 10 tapes over and over and over again
1: David seemed content and soothed by the music that the Curtis family provided, and Marie was glad. She turned to David and saw that he was lying exposed on the bed. His body had been coated in sylvanine, except for the grafted areas, and Marie was shocked to see that the areas had turned completely black. Marie got closer to take a better look, and sure enough, his arm and leg were black. She panicked as she thought gangrene had taken over the grafted areas. Marie then shouted to the nursing team that David had turned black. They needed to do something right away. His limbs appeared to be falling off. Dee Fraser, one of David's regular nurses, ran to Marie, asking her what was wrong. Marie voiced her concerns, pointing to her son lying in the open bed. Marie was sure they'd have to come amputate. Marie wanted to know why she was told the grafting went well when David was turning black. Nurse Fraser was trying to desperately hold back her laughter. <laughs> Marie, that's cadaver skin. When an area of the body has been debrided, the doctors will cover the area with cadaver skin to protect it. A cadaver? Like a dead person's skin? Marie asked her. Yes, Marie, that's right. The doctors are preparing him for another graft. So, they cut away the defiled dead skin and protected it with a cadaver skin held with staples until the graft. So, it couldn't be attacked by infection or organisms in the air. Eh i don't like it i was thinking when i first started that that was the part where they took the skin off of because on mine it was like a plastic coating like like they put elmer's glue over it but stronger and then they just peeled it away but that was where they took the skin from not where they were getting ready to put skin on marie made sure to turn away from Davy so that he wouldn't hear she asked the nurse so why is it all black the nurse started laughing because she couldn't help it. And she said, because the donor was black, Marie. (laughs) Well, it would
0: would make sense, you know, if somebody's like, why is he turning black? You're like, because a black man put skin on him. Uh, Yeah. Say thank you. (laughs) I'd be like, oh, I get it. Marie
1: had to take a second to look at her son lying in that bed wrapped in someone else's skin. In that moment, she didn't know if it were a black man, woman, or child, and all she knew (coughs) was that someone's loved one had to die to donate that skin. She realized that someone had lost their son or daughter to save her son. The lyrics from Jesus Loves the Little Children was filling David's room at the moment. Red, yellow, black, or white, they're all precious in his sight. Truer words have never been spoken. Marie stayed with the Curtis family the entire time David was in the UCI burn unit. Judy and Ken never asked for or expected any money from Marie.
0: So every morning when she would get up, there was always hot tea, fresh fruit, a variety of of cereals and morning breads. Always set out for Marie to choose from when she got up. Um... She had tried to give money to the Curtis family many, many times, dozens of times, and they would always tell her that they couldn't take money from her. She would insist after these really lengthy debates with Judy and be like, okay, listen, please just take $100 from me, uh, $100 a week. You know, I'm still saving all sorts of money by not being in the hotel or not eating out for all of these meals. For real. And so Judy finally, you know, she finally relents and she's like, okay, I'll take the money on one condition that we put it in this little jar in the pantry and then in the food pantry. And then if we need it, then we'll use it. And so Marie had like hyper extended her elbow, patting herself on the back by winning this tiny little battle. And she leaves. She comes back later that night. And Judy had, in fact, taken all the money, but she had gone out and bought Marie... California appropriate clothes. Now, mind you, <laughs> this is still like early spring, late winter in New York, where it would be cold, gray, slushy, and shitty. And in Southern California, it is not the same. And so when she arrived to Southern California, it was like all the shit she had in New York. So obviously, the she, attire. Yeah, she didn't pack her shorts and tanks. No. No. So, uh, so she had actually gone out and purchased like new pajamas, clothes, and other things that Marie didn't have while she was there. And Judy had put out the purchases onto Marie's bed for her, so that she like it was all set up, kind of as a nice little surprise when she got there. Yeah. And Marie opens the door and she's like, "What?" Oh, Because, like, you you can't get mad at new jammies. Yeah, like, talk no. talk about a good friend to have. It's kind of like how I'm lucky to have you. Because when you came to see me in rehab, you're like, here's some socks. Here's With some jammers. shampoo and conditioner. Here's some jammies. Here's the <laughs> deodorant your drunk ass forgot to pack. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fuck. That was funny. When, um... When I heard that you forgot all those things, I'm like, I'm on it.
0: <laughs> I Amazon that shit, and then Jesus. I'll bring the rest later. <laughs> Dude, it was seriously one of those things where, like, five hours later when I'm standing there in my panties, and I realize I don't have any fucking pajamas, and I've got 36 pairs of underwear and two pairs of socks, I was like, drunk people should not pack their own fucking bags. Like, who mm-hmm. the fuck put me in charge of packing my shit?
1: I came to help you pack, but by the time I got there, you were already packed and ready
0: to roll, so I was like, oh. I probably should have waited just a little bit longer so that you could have, like, double-checked my bags like you do a child.
1: Yeah. Cause, I, well, because I had to go drop my kids off, and that's why I wasn't there sooner, because I was dropping them off to their grandpa, because I was headed that way to help you pack. I was like, let's make sure we get all the things.
0: I did not take all the things. Nope. Apparently, I thought I was going to the Hilton for three days,
1: where they provide shampoo and conditioner. If you've forgotten something, you can call the front desk.
0: Right. Well, and they probably would have happily provided those things to me had I asked. For $3, but at the 000. time, I was at the time I was withdrawing rather rapidly, and it was not <laughs> the best day. Like the b- things I didn't give a fuck about: deodorant, deodorant, pajamas. Fuck. All right
1: guess like, cool. I've got, anywhere. I'll sleep in them.
0: I'm I God. actually, I had a lesbian roommate that just got out of prison and uh, she was supposed to be kind of like my babysitter. And when she was like, listen, bro, like she called me bro all the time. <laughs> listen, bro. she was like, I'm not going to fuck with you if you need something. Let me know. Otherwise, I'm just going to leave you alone. Okay. And I was like, are you shy? She's like, I just got out of prison. I was like, awesome. Because I fucking forgot to bring pajamas. And I ripped my pants off and crawled my Fat ass in bed, dude, <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my ass dangling out of the sheets because I've got the fucking cold sweats. Yeah, so I'm doing the hot colds, mm-hmm. and I keep flipping that fucking blanket off me. That poor woman, she had a lot to deal with those first few days.
1: <laughs> it's probably nothing compared to prison. So she I don't know, man.
0: Perfect. How many people? Because I, I had a fucking I had two seizures that night in the oh, middle of God, my withdrawals. It was pretty pretty fucking gnarly. Marie had gone and taken a call later that day from Officer Branham, and he basically alerted Marie to the fact that the press was getting rent-lit. They're getting rented. Sounds like a fucking car where the alternator's going (laughs) out. (laughs) Officer Branham alerted Marie to the fact that the press was starting to get restless, and they really had to hear from her. It was decided that a brief press conference would be held... Uh, very short, 10 minutes, maybe 20 at the Buena Buena Park Police Department. A few questions, and that would be it. Marie had been in Southern California for a week now, and at this point, the press really had been very wonderful. They had told David's story, and they told it very lovingly. They were passionate about the little boy. People had been writing, sending in cards and letters, and there was often money that was tucked inside of these um you know, these greeting cards or whatever. People were calling, they were writing, they were wanting to know, you know, more about David and Marie. Thousands, like several thousands of dollars had actually come to Marie, and she knew that she owed everybody an interview to say thank you, uh, first and foremost, for the outpouring of love and support. But they also deserve to know how this, you know, this little boy that they've, they've all been, you know, waiting to know... They deserved an update on him too. Marie became very nervous over the next few days and she really struggled with her anxiety. She actually went to uh, the Buena Park Police Department to meet with Officer Branham. And when she goes in there, she's like, listen, I will do this press conference, but I am like shaking out of, m- I'm about to jump out of my own skin. I have to have something. I need like a Xanax or a Valium. And he's like, what the fuck? Like you think with it, like... You're in the police department. And she's like, well, you've got to have an ev- a, like an evidence locker somewhere. Like, where are the drugs that you <laughs> confiscate from Weed, people? I don't give a shit. Yeah, like at this point, just get anything to calm me down. And he's like, y- any medicine that we have is going to be evidence. And you cannot just go prancing through our evidence locker and take shit. She's like, well, I don't care how the fuck, like, get it. Get it so I can take it, so I can do this thing that you're wanting me to do. So, he actually, Officer Branham, reaches out to his wife and he's like, Hi, I need something to calm this woman down so that she can do this press conference without having a goddamn heart attack. And luckily, Officer Branham's wife is like, Actually, I do have a little red volume sitting right here. And so, he was able to get Marie some medicine so that she um, can go on with the day. Go on with the show. Unfortunately, Marie, you know, he hands her the pill, and he's like, he gave her two. He's like, you only need half of one of those, and she swallows them both. She's like, fuck it, (laughs) and like, go big or go home, right? So she takes more than what she was supposed to, and she over-medicates herself to a humorous degree. Now, Marie has basically been told by Officer Branham that they're going to do this 10 to 20 minute. They're going to, have you know, answer five or six questions, Um, and then she's supposed to... Tap him on the leg and be like, "Yo, I'm ready to be donezo." I'm
1: tapping out, man.
0: Get me out of here. Well, <laughs> Marie's supposed to do the tap out method. Unfortunately, the little red pill kept her very fucking chatty, which is hilarious because I've seen that happen with Spencer the first time he ever took a valium. The one and only time he's ever taken a valium, probably the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. It's like the most my husband said in a single thirty-minute car ride ever. <laughs> <laughs> so Marie goes in and she sits down and she starts telling the story of David and the press is starting to answer questions and they're all like lining up one by one single file so that they can get to the front of the of the room and ask Marie about the little boy who was burned by his daddy. She talked about how David couldn't see or speak quite yet, but they never ran out of things to talk about. Marie had talked about how at one point, at one point in time, she thought that it would be better if David did die. Um, that he was gonna go through so much. He'd already gone to, gone through so much, and this was just the tippy tip of the iceberg. This doesn't, you know, nobody can foresee what kind of extra horrible shit this poor kid is gonna have to go through. And she said, you know, some days are good, some days are bad, but he fights so hard that at this point, I think he deserves every chance to live that he gets. When she was
1: asked, what do you do all day? Marie said she comes in at 8 a.m. and leaves at 10 p.m. I only leave for his bath during that time. She reads him his favorite stories, The Little Engine That Could. She also reads cards and letters from well-wishers until he shakes his head no, and then she sings to him. When asked what the most difficult part was, she said it was the pain that he feels every day that she cannot take away. When she was asked about Charles, she said that she doesn't feel bitterness right now. She said it was not her place to judge him or hate him. He will have to live with this for the rest of his life, she said. She said that if he did this to hurt her, why didn't he just try to kill her? Probably because he knew this would hurt her even worse. Uh Mm-hmm. The press asked if David knows that it was his father that tried to kill him. And Marie says that she knows that she will have to tell him, but she hasn't yet. And now isn't the time. They asked what happens next for Davey. She said, if he lives through the next few weeks, he will require a lifetime of surgeries, therapy, both physical and mental reconstruction and mobility surgeries, etc. Marie sees Ken and Judy in the press audience and talks about her new appreciation for God, prayer, and how God and her new friends were helping her and David get through it all. Marie spends more than 10 minutes with the press. Whatever was in that pill was pretty magical. She spent almost an hour answering all of the questions. Marie gowned up to go see David after the press meeting. Marie leaned in to talk to David and noticed that his ear had fallen off. She asked if he was feeling okay, and he nodded yes, but where the hell was his ear Uh Marie asked the night nurse, but she didn't know because she had never been assigned to Davey before. She just said, you'll have to ask the doctors. Thanks, bitch. Marie felt hurt, sad, angry, and confused. The nurse's response was cold and felt heartless to Marie. She She went to go search for the doctors. She spotted Dr. Sankery, who I almost called Dr. Skankery. Who had been treating?
0: Wait, what did you just call him?
1: I almost called him Skankery, but how did you say it? Sankery, Sankari, Sankari. I like Skankery the best. Can right, we change it to that? Yep, you sure can. Okay.
0: go bunkers.
1: He had been treating Davy with others since day one. Marie interrupted Doctor Sankari, <laughs> who was in the middle of a conversation with another doctor. She pulled him away and wanted to discuss David's ear asap. The pills she had taken to relax her for the press conference had worn off, and she was no longer in a comfortable comfortable state.
0: Comfortable.
1: Watch out, Dr. Skankery.
0: Yeah. At this point, I mean, fuck. You go in, and you see your kid laying there, and you lean in to say goodnight, and he's missing an ear. Yeah, it's going to probably jackhammer some adrenaline into your body. Nobody could be like, before you go in there, he's missing an ear. So... (laughs) Well, in that moment, she, every fear, every pent up feeling, every emotion that she had been struggling with, basically just bubbled out of her body and fucking anxiety and all of this shit just burst out of her face. And she, uh, long story short, the woman verbally assaults the shit out of this doctor.
1: I can't imagine why I would do the same fucking thing.
0: Okay, so she unloads. Her son's missing an ear. She just had to do this press conference. The The little red pills have worn off. And when she goes over to the doctor, she she interrupts and she's like, Listen, I want to talk to you about David's ear. And the doctor looks at her and is like, Okay, what's, what's the matter? And at this point, I think between stress and anxiety and exhaustion that... She was pretty much ready to kill everybody and anybody with words at this point. His ear is not there. And mother fucking ear is gone. Why? Explain it. Explain it yes. to me like I'm fucking five. Or just tell me about it. Period. Tell me. Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. Right? So she's having a come apart and Dr. S- Dr. Sankari looks at her and he's like, why don't you calm down, Marie? Okay. Let me tell you all the ways you never, ever look at an angry woman in any sort of situation and if she's having a fucking mental come apart don't ever say why don't you calm down you should calm down calm down
1: a word that could be used in that place is like hold on hold on don't say chill don't say calm down do not wait 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 and no matter what you say you're gonna it's the wrong thing just so you know
0: (laughs) At pretty At that particular <laughs> juncture, you need to look at that woman and say, I, under, like, I know that you are angry and you deserve, you have every right to be angry. Start it that way and that disarms us. Like for a brief moment in time, we're like shocked. We're like, uh-huh. but if you start out with, I, I get it, you're angry and you deserve, you have every right to be angry. Don't fucking, don't tell me to calm down. Don't tell me to chill. Don't tell me, oh, fuck. I just, like, I squeezed your dog so hard. I was thinking about uh, the, you're overreacting. Why? Uh. You are, why are you flipping out right now? You are totally overreacting. Let me show you fucking overreact. You think this is overreacting? I'll show you overreacting. Let's overreact now. You are so extra. Why are you so over the top? You just flipped that extra switch, motherfucker. Let me show you. <laughs> Fuck. Dude, and if I start thug clapping, <laughs> if I turn that, if I'm like, oh, you son... Yeah, that's, that's never a good sign. So... Dr. Sankari looks in her and she's like, let's talk about this away from David's door. Like, he doesn't need to hear this. It's not good for him. And in that moment, she was actually really embarrassed and she felt bad. She, like, she was being talked down to. And she knew that David shouldn't hear that shit. She knew that it's not okay. But they get over to, you know, where they've got a little bit more privacy. And she's, you know, she's looking at him and she's like, what the fuck? and he's like what has happened like what what are what are you freaking out for and she's like you don't seem to understand or care right now but my son is missing a fucking ear and the doctor looks at her and he's like well you know with this kind like these are third degree very serious burns and when this happens it's a possibility that yeah their ears and other delicate parts of the body might fall off and The doctor looked embarrassed at this point because he's trying to explain this to her and he's like trying to turn away from her because uh, there was a variety of things that were happening at this moment. You've got an angry mother screaming in your face. You're trying to explain and there's really, at this point, there's nothing you can say to this woman that is going to bring her anger to Mm -hmm. a respectable level. And You're here. I need you to be down here. Yeah, you're at a fucking 10. I need you at a 2 and this shit ain't gonna happen. So... She, like, chases him. Like, he turns away from her, like, fuck, he's burned. What did you expect? That wasn't good enough. So Marie chases after him, you know, and she's got her finger on his face. And she's like, let me tell you. And it was like, David's not your your first burn patient, is he? And the doctor's like, well, no. Of course not. Like, I'm a specialist. Hello? And so Marie, you know, she furthers this conversation with... So you would know that, you know, in your expertise, these things are something that you might experience. Well, yeah, you're the doctor. I'm the mother. I don't know these things. You do. Like, keep me informed. If Is anything else going to fall off of my son? Like, just a little, like, let me know. And it's, I think that doctors get into a situation where... It's not that they don't care about your feelings. It's not that they don't care about your recovery. They are so fucking focused on the here and now and trying to, like, keep this kid alive that you're, like, they forget to update you on things. And Mm -hmm. you not being able to wrap your head around, like, oh, my kid, oh, my God, my kid doesn't have an ear. Bitch, your fucking kid almost doesn't have a heartbeat. And...
1: You can't sit there and Google everything, like, what might happen in no, the not,
0: 80s. Yeah, we can WebMD. It doesn't matter. Even if they did have WebMD, she would put in his symptoms and he would have, like, He leukemia. would have been dead. No, he's got leukemia. He, like, yeah. third degree burns, ear fell off. He's got syphilis.
1: And he died three weeks
0: ago before and he's the already burn died. even happened. That's why the ear fell off. Yeah. He died of syphilis, and now his um he's biodegradable fucking organic materials. Sorry. Yes. What the fuck did we just say? I'm not sure. All right, cool. So at this point, she's um, she continues like you know she's crying, she's weeping, she's going after him, and he finally grabs her and gives her like embraces her, like gives her a snug hug, and he's like, I'm sorry, I promise to do better. Oh. And he's like, you know, he's trying to help her calm down and relax, take some deep breaths like Paloma. Yeah, I
1: think and
0: that got her in the
1: feels too. Yeah. She was She's like, like oh, oh,
0: I get it. I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> Sometimes I just need a squeeze. But he was like, okay, no more surprises. Like, I will try to do better about keeping you in the educated circle of medical fucking mishaps. So Marie hops back in her borrowed car and she's driving back to the Curtis's home. And that's when she goes in and she tells Ken and Judy that his ear has fallen off. So the three of them gather up, they circle in and they pray. Um, So the next morning she gets up and she's preparing to get her shit together for the day and go back to the hospital and Charles of Face appears on the TV. So needless to say, her anxiety level like jumps through the roof. Of like even course. seeing him on television, knowing he's arrested still scares her. Mm-hmm. Charles had a little bit of a scruffy beard and he was in a, a yellow prison jumpsuit from North Orange County. They had also showed like live footage of him in addition to like the photographs that like the um, mug shots that mm-hmm. they had taken. <clears throat> said the father accused of trying to burn his son to death in a motel room has waived his preliminary hearing, leading to speculation that he will plead guilty and avoid trial. Fewer than one defendant a year forego their prelims, which determines evidence for the trial. The judge warned Charles that dropping the hearing could have serious consequences, but Charles had admitted that he set the fire, said he didn't want to go to trial. He said, I want to lessen the burden of everybody involved. Okay. Well, Thanks. Good job. Well, you could start by, I don't know, hanging yourself. That'd be great. Right.
1: You could have done this a long time
0: ago. You should have just, just joined your son in that fire.
1: Or not even set your son on fire just to carry yourself first. Bye. That's horrible to say, but fuck. If you're going
0: to do something like don't that. Don't hurt your fucking kids. I hate that shit. Don't like hurt that, that guy else. up in fucking yeah. little Jamaica up in New York that put his three-year-old baby in the back seat. With propane and shit and chained the doors shut and burned his little girl to death to get back of her mom. Fuck that guy. I hope he gets juiced in prison. Mm-hmm. A lot. A lot. With like the biggest dangers you've ever seen. You're a dinger. <laughs> You're a dinger. They don't even have dingers. In the newscast, the reporter continued to describe how Charles had signed over the 13000 that was in his possession to David's medical. The quote of Marie threatening to keep David away from Charles that led to the attempted murder was being all over... It was being discussed repeatedly all over national news.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Right, and Marie at this point is... She's suffering from insomnia. She's completely exhausted and like dude, I know from personal experience that after being in a state of sleeplessness for 24 to 36 hours, you start getting like a weird delirium. Mm-hmm. She was already worried about what people were going to say to her. When Charles is making these kind of claims and he's basically trying to alleviate his portion by putting the putting the blame on her, and it it really kind of fed the fears that she already felt at fault. But when you've got somebody else saying it out loud, I mean, it does more than ruin your day.
1: Yeah, and no matter how ridiculous it is, like I was mad at you, so I burned our son. Right. It's still gonna hit you in the feels. Marie feared that David would blame her one day for everything that happened to him. People would stop her in the streets and ask her why she married the creep. Why did you allow him in yours and David's life? Why would you let him stay around even after the divorce? Wouldn't David start to say the same things? Marie tried to explain to people about Charles as a father how involved he was. He never missed parent-teacher meetings. He always did fundraisers. He would show up on rainy days with an umbrella. He kept up with David's schoolwork and projects. There was no reason to ever suspect murder or probably even harm. Reporters started interviewing people that knew Charles, former employers. Um, Everyone said that they couldn't believe that Charles tried to murder David. The principal at David's school went on record as saying the school thought Charles had been the perfect father. He never showed anything but exemplary parenting and love and noted how hard this must be for Marie. All interviews yielded the same comments of, We never saw this coming. Marie said that she saw them but made excuses for all of it. Charles was tired. Charles was stressed. Charles needed money. Charles wasn't raised in a good home. Charles didn't have anyone to teach him right and wrong. Marie only stopped making excuses after his second conviction when David was two and they were divorced. They had no money, lots of debt from Charles. Marie was afraid of him when he was released then, thinking he might kidnap David to hurt her, but never hurt David. She had talked about wanting to move away from Charles, but then people said she couldn't run away from her past. Why would she want to take David away from his father? That Charles had rights too. People always mentioned how sad David was when his father was jailed. Just imagine how sad he would be if you take him away. Marie had been trying to keep David safe then and now she would have to face the day that she told David his father had done this to him. Now at this point, David starts regaining his sight. He can see how much damage has been done, but he cannot ask who, what, when, why, how yet.
0: The doctors had planned to remove the ventilator from David and he had a scope that showed the pink tissues down into his lungs were healthy and they were healthy enough for him to breathe on his own now. This would also free up his throat for speech. Sue Martinez, the head nurse, had run to Marie that morning when she had arrived and said the doctors took the tubes out, but David was refusing to speak. So, of course, Marie, the little busybody anxiety bug that she is, mm-hmm. she's like, why? What Like, what happened now? What is going on? And they get down there, and they're like getting ready to turn the corner to go into David's room, and he's like, David's been saving his first words for you. He refused to speak to the doctors, wouldn't talk to the nurses because he wanted wanted to talk to his mommy first. So she comes in and he, you know, he sees that his mom is in the room and he turns and goes, mommy. And she, of course, just burst into tears and says, yes, baby, you can talk. And he looks at her, (laughs) looks at her, and he goes, I'm very thirsty, mommy. And she started laughing and she's like, well, God, somebody get this boy a drink, will you? So they're sitting there and, you know, It's like it's, in my estimation, it would be like experiencing a vast freedom for the first time. Uh When we take so much for granted on a daily basis, like being able to see or close your eyes or speak or have a a drink of cold water. You know what I mean? Um, It really just kind of speaks volumes about where this poor kid finally was. So no one knew when he, like, they didn't know if he was going to regain his sight. They had to take off his eyelids and his fucking eyes were damaged. He mm-hmm. regained his sight. They didn't know if he was going to speak, if he was going to be a, a a mute. He ga- regained his speech. So there's like little things that are coming back. And it's like one by one, she's finally getting her, like, getting her son back. He, of course, you know, he's a six-year-old little boy. He starts talking about cheeseburgers and french fries. And mommy, I really just want a Coke. <laughs> <It's> and, same. <laughs> dude, I hear you with my bad ear on that one. And of course these are things that he can't have yet, but he was being silly and that was like that was a big deal. Like considering that this kid is one big oozing burn and he's like, "You know what sounds awesome? Cheeseburger and a Coke." Like that's yay. Yeah. Improvement. So they're sitting there and the TV and the like David didn't really know what had happened to him. And he hadn't been able to ask. The TV and the radio had been off in his room, so they weren't seeing the newscasts they weren't he he had no excuse me he had no idea and he finally asked what had happened to him and Marie said that there had been a very bad accident but that she didn't know what happened yet and this was kind of they had agreed that David was still far too critical to complicate his condition by giving him like emotional duress so when Marie says you know I don't know there was just a really bad accident David basically looks her dead in the eye and says, well, you better ask my daddy because he was with me. Oh, And this is where the wheels are starting to turn in David's head, and he knows that something's up. Charles isn't in the hospital, first and foremost. And coming from experience where, you know, Charles is always up David's ass, he's this big, amazing, doting father... Your son's in the hospital. He's had a terrible accident. You're not there, but you were the last person that was with him.
1: And haven't been there the whole time because he obviously
0: knows. Yeah, he realizes that people have been there. Um, So at this point, he, he does know that something's up. Now, extra precautions had to be taken from the cops and the medical staff from accidentally telling David too much or having him overhear them. So they had to be really careful about not letting David overhear anything because their little command center for the Buena Park Police Department was literally across the hall. Days later, David would ask Marie where his daddy was, and Marie doesn't answer. She's trying to evade at this point. Davy wants to know why John can take time off work and be in California from New York, but Charles isn't there. Marie says that Charles is in a place where he can't leave and that he couldn't come visit, but that he does like he really wants to. Mhm. So yeah, David yeah. kind of looks over at her and he says, you know, is my daddy in jail? And Marie just kind of looks at him and she says, "You know what? Let's let's talk about this later and, you know, you need to you need to tuck in and get ready for bed. It's it's late." And he looks at her and he goes, "I want to know and I want to know now." Luckily, Marie had managed to persuade him that it was time for bed and that they could talk about it later. She stayed with David until he fell asleep for the night, and Marie knew, she knew, like, I am on borrowed time. My kid is going to figure this out on his own, and I'm going to have to belly up to the bar and tell my kid what's going on.
1: The next morning, Marie was hit with the inevitable from David. He had just gotten out of his daily bath when he saw his mother and asked Marie point blank if his daddy did this to him. Marie tried to change the subject by asking how his bath was, but David persisted. Did my daddy set the hotel on fire? Marie said, yes, baby, he did. David asked his mother why his father would do this to him. Marie broke down weeping and told David she didn't know. She tried to say that maybe he was sick or maybe he went crazy and that she could not explain any of it. David wanted to know what his father looked like now. David demanded to see a picture. I'm not sure if he expected his father to be burned too or not, but maybe that was his way of trying to get more answers. Marie gave him a picture of Charles with a bit of a beard from being in jail. David studied the picture from the paper and asked what arraignment meant. Marie explained that this is where a person went in front of the court to say if he was guilty or not. David asked what his father said and Marie said that Charles admitted he was guilty and he did it. David lay back on his pillow and crumpled up the paper of his father angrily. He didn't cry or speak for a long time as he processed his thoughts. David asked if anyone else was hurt by the fire. Marie told him no. He was the only one. David asked if there were other children that were burned, and Marie said no and asked him why. David insisted that he had heard screams and crying like a baby. David struggled to remember his horrible night and said that he heard screams. Marie had assured him that he was the only one hurt, and those screams must have been his own. Everyone else was lucky then, was the only thing David said. David was about to have his fourth grafting surgery, and he was to have new eyelids created so he could shut his eyes. He hadn't been able to do that since he was burned, and the docs had to cut them off due to the swelling and infection. His back legs, right shoulder, and arm, as well as his face and head would receive skin grafting this time. David was excited to have skin put on the soles of his feet. He had told his mom he wished that someone had known that he was going to be burned so they could have put shoes on. If he had shoes on, his feet wouldn't need skin and he'd be able to walk. Marie told him that no one could have known that he was going to be burned. And if they did, they would have done more than protect his feet. I never want to see my daddy again. Marie called Ken and warned him that David knew the truth. And asked for him to come to the hospital as David wanted to see him. David had grown very close with the Curtis family since they had come into his life. When Ken arrived, David perked up and uncrumpled the photo of Charles. Look, I have a picture of my dad. He's in jail. David read the article word for word. He almost made it to the end before he broke down crying. Ken, Judy, and Marie took turns trying to console David. But there was no soothing him.
0: Nope. David actually fell into a pretty deep depression. And of course, you can imagine like how horrifying this entire ordeal is for him. He started to throw temper tantrums. He started he he actually got to a point where he stopped speaking to Marie. He told people that he hated them and he seemed more and more angry by the day, but mostly at his mom. Um Sometimes he would throw fits that he would thrash so violently that the nurses would have to hold him because they didn't want his grafts or his IVs to rip and split. <clears throat> the occupational therapist came up with this really good idea to help David with an outlet for his anger. Whenever the occupational therapist, Dr. Bob, would actually come in, David would fruit the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And that what they had to do was they had to um, do stretching exercises so that the skin didn't like heal in on itself and cause um webbing basically well or like tight like Mm -hmm. it it, the skin will tighten up and um like not and it'll cause the fingers to hook and look like claws and it can cause the body can like contract and twist so dr bob would walk into the room and david would be like no 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 and he would scream and be like you make me sick get out of here it's the worst. Oh, dear. I I
1: agree.
0: I only so had a you, tiny you,
1: bit, but I know exactly what he fucking feels like. Because just trying to get me to be able to raise my arm above my head mm-hmm. was fucking horrifying. It was weeks and weeks and weeks, months of having to do all kinds of exercises just so I could get a full range of motion in my arm.
0: Yeah. And he's got to do his entire body. Yeah, I so. can't
1: even. I can't no, even. No,
0: I don't like it. So... Dr. Bob comes up with this plan okay? he comes in and they they have to do these these skin exercises and stretches so that the skin's not contracting and paralyzing him. Well the psychologist and therapist came up with this idea to give him a doll that was fashioned to look just like him and he had burns and he had gauze on him and he had splints on like on his body as well. And so David takes this doll and he there they also gave him like a little kit. To where he had bandages to change for the doll, and he had needles to give the the dolly shots for because they had to do um, quite a few painful injections on him, and this seemed to work quite a bit. He would mellow out. He wasn't being as um, he wasn't being as hateful, and after you know, after he spent some time with his new. Doll, Which was morbidly abused for many, many years. Instead of throwing the fits and like attacking his mom when it was time to do his exercises, he'd be like, here, stretch his arm. (laughs) You know, and so it's somebody to help, I think, share in that, that moment. Yeah. Not long after the doctors took Marie aside for a very serious conversation about the surgery that would have to happen, a very radical surgery. He had developed gangrene in his fingers and they had to be removed. Mm -hmm. When they said that they were going to try and leave enough to fashion thumbs and forefingers, but portions, most of the finger was going to have to be cut off to save his hands and his life, Marie wanted other options. She didn't want him to lose his hands because she pretty much figured like without your fingers and hands, like... What are you going to do with yourself? Yeah. And so she told um, Dr. Ockhauer, she was like, you know what? I want a different specialist. I'm going to take him out of this hospital. I'll take him somewhere else. And she starts crying, as moms do, like you do. Yeah. And he looked at her and he's like, I don't have time for your fucking tears. Like, take that shit and go somewhere else. And it's not that he was being cruel or unkind. It's the kid has gangrene. There's no other options. You can't really save it. No. Like, and the last thing you want is a blood infection. hmm Because that's, like, that's basically signing a death warrant.
1: Do you want him to not have fingers or do you want him to not have a life?
0: Pulse or fingers. Pick one. Yeah. Well, at that particular juncture, the nurses had come up and tried to console her. And they were like, go ahead and cry. It's okay to be upset. But, you know, the doctors are the best in the nation. You are in a California burn unit. Mm-hmm. They're doing everything they can. So your, you know, your, your Neely fucking objections to his fingers being amputated, you really just need to pipe down. Yeah. So they wheel him in. They have to take him in. And Marie was pretty much just like, okay, well, if he has to lose his fingers, he's got to lose his fingers. David was fighting fevers, infections, irregular heartbeat, low blood pressure, and his poor, or like his heart was, what do they call that when he's got the irregular arrhythmia? Mm-hmm. So sometimes his heart resting was beating over 200 beats a minute. Damn. And you could like see it beating out of his chest mm-hmm. and like hear it from across the room. Marie actually thought that he might have a heart attack. And that was a very real possibility mm-hmm. for for him at that time. Yeah, Marie's sister had flown in from New York, Sandra, and she was there to comfort and visit and you know, kind of help Marie hold down the fort after this, this surgery. David's fingers had been successfully removed and when they pulled David from the surgery room, what do they call that? Operating room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the surgery. Where they have the surgery? The Where they do the surgery in. um she saw david as soon as he came out of the operating room and he was still unconscious when they wheeled him back to his room to recover now after his surgery his hands were elevated like up above his own face Mm. and they were in splints well unfortunately his little bloody stumps are his little nubbies are literally inches from his face um and they're cut, like, he's got pins in the tips of his fingers, like, holding the freshly amputated bones all together, yeah. and there's, like, bloody mesh and shit, like, around his hands, and Marie's like, um, can, do you think we could take his hands down and, like, maybe put them under the blanket, and the nurse is like, no, we can't, they have to stay elevated, doctor's orders. So, at that point, Marie's like, god damn it, because there's this, you know, you've just taken this little boy's fucking fingers. And it's, like, it's gonna be the first thing he sees when he wakes up, you know?
1: Oh, look, I don't have any fingers. Oh, my God, look,
0: no fingers. And so, of course, you know, Marie is like, um, hey, I don't want to be a fucking thorn in your side, and I know that, like, all I really do all day, every day, is advocate for, like, my son's comfort and shit. But, like, Do you know what kind of a horrific fucking emotional trauma, like a shock that's going to be for my kid to open up his eyes and the first thing he sees is blood nubbins? Can we at least try to cover him? A little bit. Uh, A little bit. The doctor said they would try to devise
1: something. Later, Marie learned that the doctor was very sensitive to the patients and their families, but as he's so focused on getting David stable that he needed that he seemed cold and uncaring. Marie had a meeting with do- with the doctor who broke it down to her and said that he just didn't have time for the emotional and spiritual needs of every person. Okay. The same day David lost his fingers, a package arrived for David. It was a well from a well-wishing stranger. They sent Bert and Ernie finger puppets. Oops. Yeah. Marie started to laugh at the irony as no one... But her and the Curtis family and medical staff knew about David's fingers. As Marie showed the people in the living room at the Curtis house, they all laughed and then cried together. One day, I hope David understands, one day, Marie said in her book. She addressed him directly. David, sometimes laughter is a kind of crying when grief has left you exhausted and your tears
0: are spent which is that's exactly why you'll hear us laugh at shit in mm-hmm. this podcast and it feels inappropriate and i know that like some people listen to this and they're looking at each other looking at their friends or looking at the whatever they're listening to this on and they're like these bitches are sick and i'm the like fuck that are is a- they laughing but this is a perfect that's a perfect explanation exactly
1: Marie then had a run-in with the staff at the burn unit. The night before another dangerous procedure, Marie intended to stay the night with her son. David had begged her not to leave him. When the resident staff came in and told her she had to leave, she refused, and then they
0: quarreled. Yes, so you've got <clears throat> you've got little Davey, and he's laying in the bed, and he's like, D- p- please, Mommy, don't leave. And you've got this resident advisor or whatever that's like um i'm sorry miss rothenberg but you can't spend the night here and she's like why not and um the the ra looks at her and he's like listen the rules are quite clear and they state that no overnight stays and she's like, well, I don't give a shit about your rules. I'm not leaving my son. And then, you know, Davey from the corner again is like, please, mommy, please don't leave me. And she's like, you you can't make an exception. Like, you want me to leave my six-year-old son burned, a shit, scared to death, alone. And they're like, sorry, I can't just break the rules. Who do you think you are? And she's like, you know how, like, right uh-huh. before you prepare to unload somebody, like, unload on somebody? you." <sighs> let
1: me explain. let
0: me tell you who the fuck i am mm-hmm. so she said let me tell you who i am i am david rothenberg's mother david is my son and he's close to death and nobody not you not a hospital not a doctor not the president is going to tell me to leave this hospital and she's just like staring at this person and he i'm gonna report this and she's like do it Report it. Like write it down. Take a picture. I don't give a fuck. Do you want me to write the report? I will not uh, let, fucking leave. Oh, who are you gonna tell? Let's go together. I'll, I'll tell them with you. And so of course the RA like goes to turn around and stomp out, and um, it was basically like the the RA she like followed him out and was like, don't bother us again.
1: David had a strange happening that Marie could sense. She told the medical staff that something was wrong, but she didn't know what. Temperature, blood pressure, pain level was all normal and okay, but Marie knew that something was off. He was lethargic and had trouble breathing, but doctors could find nothing wrong. Marie insisted that something had to be done because she could sense he was dying. Lung specialists confirmed that he had pneumonia. Liters of fluid had to be suctioned from his lungs and he improved. I heard that's fucking painful, too, if like to have the fluid removed from your lungs.
0: I don't know, because I've never had it done, but I can imagine that it's fucking gnarly. Yeah, I mean, not that he's
1: already in pain all the time every day, but goddamn, let's add something new. David finally realizes his fingers are gone and holds up his hand to Marie and says, look, mommy, I've hurt myself. He was shocked by the discovery, and Marie had to explain that, yes, he had boo-boos, but that he would get better and not worry and not to worry. there were no nurse or doctors there to help her explain to him what had happened so she said so she just said your boo-boos will go away and that was enough for him. David had more grafting with no apparent issues or complications Pins were removed from his fingers and the staples holding the cadaver skin on portions of his body were all holding those staples are a bitch yucky I don't like them.
0: Marie thought that he was in the clear but he was not. Doctors would come to her and tell her that there was some very bad news. David had actually contracted an infection called Candida and it usually in his case this type of situation was fatal. John had flown in from New York and he was there for the for the news delivery. The only way to treat it was with antibiotics but they were almost as bad like poison. As the infection that was taking over his body. At this point, he had a 50-50... 50 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. <laughs> He had a fifty-fifty chance for survival. The medicine could cause his liver and kidneys to shut down, but without that, the, candy, like the candida infection, like it's a fungal infection, yeah. it's going to take over the body and kill you anyway. Yeah. So Marie had to sign over consent forms to even treat it. So as David's being treated for the candida, he suffered like take all the suffering of like 10 people and that's what this kid is going through. So he would actually be in a state where he would sob in his sleep that he was in so much Mm. pain on the seventh day. Marie arrived to a like this chaotic scene in his room. Nurses are running in and out. There's alarms going off. Things are beeping. His blood pressure had actually dropped dangerously low and they were in the middle of working to restabilize him. His kidneys Like, full-on stopped working. Marie had pretty much had to prepare herself every day that when she walked in there, it could be his last day. Like, no matter what happened, she knew that she was going to have to prep for his death. Once the medical team had actually stabilized David, they had to watch him really close. The possibility of death was just lurking around the corner. But every time David was awake, he smiled to them. They actually got the best news that anybody could be delivered better than any medicine. Reggie Jackson from the New York Yankees was coming to see David. And in case we didn't mention it, David was a huge baseball baseball fan. He memorized stats. He never missed the games. And nobody was really supposed to know because Reggie didn't want the press coming. But as soon as Marie heard that, she had to confirm and then reconfirm. And then went running to tell David. This would be the one thing that actually lifted this kid's spirits. So once they do, okay, he's coming. Marie runs in there and she's like, David, you're not going to believe this. Reggie Jackson's coming to see you. And of course, he sits straight up in bed and he's like, oh my God, Reggie. And he starts spouting off the the stats and the facts and all of these things. And then he looks at his hands and he's like, mommy, please don't let Reggie see my hands. Now that was his biggest worry. And some speculate it's because at this point, he wouldn't be able to catch a ball or wear a glove. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hold a bat. So Reggie comes. He's well-dressed. Marie says he's in. He's smiling, very handsome. And he like turns the corner to come into this hospital room to see David, and he stops, like, bam, wait, like he hits a brick wall. And he's sitting there staring at this oozing, burned boy. And he can't even find the words to greet this little boy that's sitting there like, Oh, my God, it's Reggie Jackson. Yeah. And so David breaks the silence and goes, Hey, Reggie, how's your hamstring?
1: Aww. Well,
0: here's David, who is fighting life-threatening infections, just had his fingers amputated, burned 90% of his body, and he was worried about an injury that Reggie had sustained. It fucked up his hamstring and almost fucked up his season, and that is where his concern is. Not with himself, How's your how's your hamstring, Reg? Mm. I know. So, Reggie comes in and he sits down and he and he looks at David and he's like, "I'm fine, David. It is fine." And that he you know, he had to promise the boy it's not going to er- interfere with the season at all. And they sat, they talked ball. You know, David got a uniform, he got a hat, and autographed cards, and he actually got like a child-size um like an entire baseball uniform. Anyway, uh, he stays for about an hour, hour and a half, and then he's got to go. But before he leaves, he's like, who's the mother? And Marie turns and they walk out of the room to go visit before Reggie leaves. And he's like, you know, she goes to say something and he looks at her and he's crying, like he's blinking tears. And he goes, how's your hamstring? He was like, that kid is literally dead in there. And he's asking about my hamstring
1: i wouldn't even know what to say like i know my hamstring is nothing compared to what you're going through but then you don't want to make it worse like you don't yeah. want to put it on him again
0: i know poor little weasel
1: reggie looked marie dead in the eye and said if there was anything ever that they needed to call him marie cried happy tears and said that he had already done so much reggie hugged her and left David was joyfully chatting away with the nurses about his uniform in the visit. David finally took his stubby fingers out of hiding and asked his mom. He was nice, wasn't he? David was cradling his uniform and ball. Yes, Davy, so very nice. BPPD sponsored crime prevention for health and safety in the city. Bert, Bacharach, and Roberta Flack were featured guests who donated items for an auction to go towards David's bills bp (laughs) BP bppd set up a fund for david police wives did bake sales and bert and roberta wrote personal checks to the fund thousands of dollars marie was going to thank them personally that day but then something horrible was happening with david during his bath he stopped breathing and went blue There was no reason. They didn't know why. They started to tube him. Sirens and alarms were going off, and Marie was met by one of the nurses who was crying as she left the room and told Marie, We don't know what to do. We don't know what happened. We are trying our best. I'm not supposed to say this, but it's up to God now. If they can't get the tubes in, he's going to die. Marie started praying. She watched the doctor shove huge, shove a huge needle into David's neck to paralyze him temporarily so they could get tubes into him. They finally succeeded, and oxygen floods into David. Terry Branham went to meet the guests of the fundraiser to explain why Marie wasn't there and collect the money for David. David fought for several days. Fever, Candida, candida kicked back up. Throat swelling, David was really struggling spiritually. Reggie came back to visit again. David took a huge turn for the better when he saw his idol. David begged for water but couldn't while he was on the respirator. Reggie begged the staff to give him something. When they agreed to a sip every five minutes, Reggie sat and visited, holding David's water for a sip every five minutes for over an hour. Dr. Akauer later discovers that David's back is pussing over it's pussing over with gangrene immediate grafting had to be done his back was 20 percent of his body and it had to be taken care of now or he would die he had the surgery the next day lost five pints of blood that day they waited four days to see if the graft would take and the blood vessels bring life back to the skin the skin took and the charred green and black skin was gone new pink and red skin had started to
0: grow. The medical team and Marie had to wait until David had a bath to see more. Thanks, Paloma.
1: Attention whore.
0: You know. When they got him out, they declared that most of his grafts that had been done were successful and that he would be taken off the critical list. But there were still terrible, terrible surprises ahead. They had saved his life, but now there was going to be rehabilitation. David's grafts all looked really awesome, and his new face, the one that he asked for, he wanted it to look just like Ken's. He would also, like, whenever Ken would come and visit, he would ask to see Ken's burns. And he would, like, sit and, like, marvel at them. And he's like, I want to make sure that my scars look this good, too, when I'm all better. Mm. David had been taken to the Irvine Medical Center burn unit for three months now. He was off the critical list, but there were still miles and miles ahead of him, even though he was doing better every day. Marie decided to get baptized during this time. She had a really different relationship with Judy and Ken, and even the grandmother. Um, they had given her a special Mother's Day gift, and they gave her a diamond necklace like a that had a star on it. And it was something that, like, Ken's mother had given to Judy and then Judy in turn gave it to to Marie. And it was just one of those situations where she really felt like God had done so much for her and done so much for David that the only thing to do in return was give herself to God. Um, during this time, David actually almost bled to death in his sleep from a bad catheter. It was a catheter that had cracked and started to leak, that was filtering his blood, um, helping filter the blood almost like dialysis because his kidneys and shit weren't working all the way.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Marie had gone in there to tell him goodnight, and when she bent over to like give him a little boop on the nose type thing, she saw that there like his bed was drenched with blood. So she's screaming for help. The nurses you know, spring into action and save him, he never woke up. He didn't even like move the entire time. Um, Marie had actually become quite a complainer. While David was in there. Um, either it was, you know, whether his bath wasn't done to her standard, or maybe his splints were put on sloppily, or there wasn't enough ointment put on him. So, at this point, the doctors appointed her in charge of splints, bath, and cream care. They basically figured that if they weren't doing a good enough job that, well, put your money where your mouth is. Why don't you And do, do it yourself. It? You're going to have to Not do only it at home. It was, now you have to start prepping to do all of these things. Um... When you guys leave, you guys, you know, you you're gonna have to learn how to do all of these things. You're gonna have to care for these wounds, um, and she was okay with that. She could also demand new baths if they weren't done well enough, and it it gave her a new a new way to develop relationships with the staff because now it wasn't just them being bossed around by her, but they were training her as well. Mm-hmm. David hated his splints. They were incredibly stiff, they were painful, and he would often beg Marie not to put them on. Now, they realized that the splint was actually the wrong size and that he was complaining about pain because somehow it, you know, the wrong size splint made it in there and he really was in pain. But this also gave Marie a chance to learn. Those splints, though,
1: are bitch. They're like... With mine, they made it a hard cast, so it's so you don't touch each other. Your skin doesn't touch itself, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And they are the most uncomfortable motherfucking things in the world. Because if you can't have any part of your skin touching each other and you have splints holding you out, just for anybody who doesn't understand what the splints are, that's what they are. And they are uncomfortable as shit.
0: Well, and that's the thing is, like, he was in so many different splints Mm -hmm. for different shit, that and this kid is in a constant state of pain Mm -hmm. like you can't have those kinds of burns grafts infections fucking and not hurt a lot yeah so it did give her an idea of like when he was really in pain or if he was like copping out on her um there was one particular episode where a nurse was trying to force David to move when he said that he couldn't. And he was in splints. He was fresh from a grafting surgery and he had healing grafts and scars on the other side. The nurse was trying to change his, seat, his sheets and she was trying to force him to get out of bed and get into an, like on a gurney so that she could do the linens. And he was, like, groaning and, like, rocking from side to side. And he's like, I can't. And Marie told the nurse, she's like, you need to stop. He can't move right now. And then the nurse turned, and she's like, oh, he can. We're just not going to make him, are we? Oh, bitch. I know. So, at that point, Marie, being the mom that she is, like, loses her shit. And she's like, are you fucking mental? Look at my son. Do you see that he's got fresh skin grafts? Do you see the skin? Like, they just pulled the staples out of his body. He hurts. He can't move. Piss off. Wow, that was... Piss off. Piss off. So later, Marie would actually go and have a conversation with one of the nurses that was regularly there, Nurse Jerry. And... Nurse Jerry was like, Hey, I'm I agree with you. That would have hurt him. She could have ripped his grafts. Lots of things could have gone terribly wrong uh, trying to get him to move himself instead of like safely moving him. And she thanked Marie for standing her ground with that temporary nurse that night.
1: Hmm. A temporary nurse needs to go her fucking place.
0: Temporary nurse needs to back the fuck up and stay in her lane. Look, temp bitch. Listen, night nurse. Stay in your lane, bro. Stay in your lane. <laughs> stay in your lane.
1: In David's first weeks of rehab, he was still oozing. Badly burned, wrapped in netting. Marie threatened to throw the therapist from the room for her- for hurting David. The therapist had to explain why he had to do what he was doing. His hand would claw, as we talked about before, his hand would claw, his back would arch, his arms would bend because the skin just like shrinks and, and won't grow the right way if you don't do the the therapy. He also had to wear what you have in here, skin garments, but they're called job stockings and they're they're like compression clothes times infinity. Like mine were so tight that they would cut me if I didn't take them off. And, you know, uh, if I wore them for too long, they would cut into me because they were so tight. Um, usually you have to wear them all over your body after the graft to keep it from knotting up. And I obviously didn't wear mine enough cause mine knotted up cause I hated that fucking thing. I took it off every chance I got. David hated his therapist, Bob, for the rehab, which I can relate to. He called him mean names and said he made David sick. How he would scream for Marie to make him stop. Sometimes Bob worked silently, and other times they yelled at each other, and other times they joked. Bob would sometimes bribe or try to explain it away. Sometimes he would shout at David, cut it out. What do you think you are, a six-year-old? Act your age. You aren't a two-year-old. Bob knew David was going through hell, but he never gave up on the boy. He had to explain the horror of the treatment to Marie. He once pointed at the girl in the center who was twisted up and crippled over. He explained she was fine until she went home. The parents gave in to the pain and crying, and now she was a horrible, misshapen, and bent. Now there was nothing that they could do. Ugh. Uh-huh. Thank Jesus for... M- I'll take this moment to thank my parents for making me do that shit when I yelled at him all the time because right. I was not pleasant. David fought the rehab, but Marie knew Bob was doing it because he cared. One day, Reggie Jackson came to visit when David was refusing to do his exercises, and David turned away from Reggie when the baseball hero tried to get him to comply. Reggie had to show David how he got his muscles to play. How exercise made him the champion, and slowly David turned back and did all the painful rehab with with Reggie. In rehab, David would catch the ball with Bob, and David was so angry because Bob threw the ball, and David said not to because he had no fingers and he couldn't catch. The ball bounced off David's chest, and Bob kept throwing the ball. David used his stiff arm to hit the ball, and it smacked Bob on the head, and David laughed and laughed just like reggie slugger Jerry, Bob and Sue worked through all the exercises diligently to keep David from contracting even though all of his <laughs> even through all of his fits and hate he would scream and yell and tell them that they hated him and he made them sick or they made him sick they never stopped the time came for David to walk he had not walked since the accident his feet were still open and it was horrific pain for him One minute went to five, then ten, soon twenty. They would have to bribe him to walk. Yeah, they would play Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones, and they would close the doors and play it extra loud. They would tease him and dance with him until he screamed in pain. And when he finished, they would give him huge hugs and hurrahs for his effort. Probably not hugs.
0: He So, he would actually scream at the nurses that he hated them and then give them great big hugs, like start crying, and be Aww. like, thank you. So, <clears throat> there was one time that a maintenance man had actually left one of the great big power scrubbers outside of his bedroom door. And him and nurse Jerry were in there hanging out. And they had just finished with some of his exercises. And David looks over and he's like, I bet I could run that thing. And she goes, no, you couldn't. So, they snuck out and... Like, hijacked this gigantic industrial floor scrubber. Well, once they get it started, they immediately lose control of it. And David is on his gurney. He almost gets knocked off of it. And Jerry's trying to like hold on to this huge scrubber. And she like lets go of it and it's like flying down the hall, right? Just, Rrr, just eating things up in the like in a wake of destruction. And David looks at her and he's like, oh my God, we're going to be in so much trouble. We need to get out of here. (laughs) And she's like, you're not to blame. This is like, this is all on me. This is not on you. You're not on, like you're not in trouble. So here comes the maintenance guy and he has to chase down this machine to get it shut off. And in that moment, David said that he was to blame for the fire. So Nurse D has to tell David that he's not to blame, that you're the victim. And the only bad guy was the one that lit the flames. Well, What people didn't know was that David had been dealing with quite a bit of guilt, and he felt like the fire was his fault, and even though he was asleep, he was there. Mm. And, you know, little kids don't understand, like, little kids feel guilty for the craziest shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So later that day, another nurse had come in and, you know, was teasing him about being in trouble for hijacking the the floor scrubber and david like sits up and he's like no 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 i wasn't the driver that was d d's in trouble i'm not right and she looks at him and winks and she's like that's right <laughs> and i thought that was really cute and she's yeah. like let's go hijack a You're floor right. scrubber
1: <laughs> i don't know you get on let's do this you
0: ride yeah. it yeah <laughs> so marie had been working daily with david to keep moving His joints, his skin, his muscles, everything was extremely stiff and painful. Sometimes they just pushed him around outside in a green, so that he had time, you know, fresh air, that kind of thing, but he was still too tired and too hurt to walk on his own. David had started to suffer more than just the pain of his hurting body. The emotional pain of people pointing and staring and saying things about his burn was happening more and more. Marie couldn't believe, like, how cruel and just... Un, like how careless and thought like unthoughtful what's the word thoughtless thoughtless thank you how thoughtless people were when they were looking at him and they're like oh my god mm-hmm. and she's like jesus christ like how do you not look at like you don't look at a little burned boy and you're like that's a little kid maybe i shouldn't be like jesus
1: christ let's yeah how about- you know, maybe
0: you just like smile and wave to him
1: and say th- hi think things in your head but not react maybe i don't know and,
0: and i understand like they there are some things that you see there you're like oh and you should be like maybe not apologize and make a big deal out of it but like smile and wave and just say hi how are you mm-hmm. you know what i mean like try to recover the best you can but fuck me don't act like a complete halfwit yeah um and marie was growing more and more tired because she was constantly trying to hide david from these people's like shocked faces and comments Nurse D would take David outside a lot, and they had found this little bunch of wild cats that had, like, a bunch of feral kitties that had been living on the property. He would actually beg every day to go outside and see him. Nurse Jerry would usually, like, throw him on a cart, say okay, and take him outside, and then, you know, be like, don't touch the cats, and the cats cannot touch you. He was still, you know, healing had open areas, so, of course, kitty cats, dirty, feral kitty cats, are not on the approved list of cuddle things. (laughs) Well, Marie and Dee took him outside, and they couldn't resist, so they, like, pulled his blankets up as far as they could to cover his grafts. and he had this little kitten that he named E.T. It was Mm. a very weird-looking little kitty, kind of alien-looking. And so he wanted to go see E.T. and he asked his mom to come with. And they get out there and he's like, please, please, can I hold the kitty? So he gets a hold of the kitty in his little arms with his nubbin fingers and he's loving on him. And that's when Nurse Jerry comes around the corner and catches him and she's like, God damn it! And of course, he's like, fuck, now we're in for it. She busted us.
1: Shit, it was D. <laughs> D did it!
0: <laughs> well, I think what they failed to understand until later was that Nurse Jerry was there a lot, and she had fallen in love with David, and she cared more than just, you know, you're going to get him dirty or he's going to get an infection. Like, anything at this point can be life-threatening, and she genuinely cared about his health. David and Dee would often draw together, and they had basically made these large, oversized instruments for him to color with. Without fingers, so he could, like, grasp them in his whole arm to to do pictures. They had amputated down to the second joint, and a lot of the skin had, like, knotted and stubbed. Yeah. He would often have to hold up his hands, and, like, they would do the massages and stuff. But he would, like, look at his hands and be like, when are my fingers going to grow back? Aww. And... Therapist Bob promised. He said, we'll get your hands working again. I promise. He never said his fingers were going to go back. He just said, we'll get your hands working. Yeah. So the day came that they had to start doing these torturous exercises on his hands and his wrists. And again, David screaming and crying. Please stop. Please stop. You make me sick. Like, dude, that that would be so difficult. Yeah. To have a little kid crying in legitimate pain and fear and look at you, you make me sick.
1: Anybody that does that job is
0: like amazing. Is an amazing person. I don't know. You either have to be like heart of gold or soulless as fuck. Yeah. Well, occupational therapist Bob devised a plan to make David use his nubby little fingers to pick up candy. So he had gotten in front of David and he scattered M&Ms all over the tray and like Reese's pieces and he's he looks at him and David's like "Please help me." He's like, "Nope, sorry kid. If you want those, you got to pick them up yourself." and walked away.
1: He's like, "But it a candy, please. <laughs> please, sir. I have no fingers." <laughs> But even though he kept begging, nobody was going to come and help. David struggled to set the candy up on their sides. He pushed one piece into the other hand and stiffly popped it into his mouth. Bob was watching from afar and rushed in and grabbed David's arms and cheered. Like, wow, you Mm -hmm. did it. See, see, I knew you wanted candy. (laughs) David asked Bob to help him make a gift for Marie. Bob took the opportunity to make... David work as he made a gift. He got string and beads for David and to make Marie a necklace. David and Bob fought over the string because David couldn't pick it up. And David was mad that Bob was giving him a hard thing to do. After a mighty struggle, David managed to get the string in his fingers and he had started beating. Some missed, some fell off. Once the whole string was was dropped, but at the end of the day, Davy presented his mother with a beaded necklace that he had made all by himself. David had no nose, no eyebrows, no hair, but he lit up at the sight of his mother beaming with pride over her necklace. The doctors did what they said they would do and gave Davy his hands back. The time came after a hundred days for Davy to be released to another hospital, the Shriners in Boston. He had to say goodbye to all of his nurses and doctors and to the Curtis family, too. Marie apologized for being such a witch as they said their goodbyes, and the nurses all laughed and cried. Sue Martinez gave an interview for the LA Times, and Marie read all about what the nurse really thought of her and cried happy tears as she absorbed the words. She's a tremendous person, a huge factor in David's recovery, a woman of incredible strength. Doctors and therapists all came to say goodbye. Balloons and lollipops aplenty. Some nurses were sad. They said goodbye and ran off to their rounds. Marie kept asking herself why she was leaving, but the answer was simple. She was homesick. She missed her fiancé, John, who had exhausted his vacation time and bank account traveling back and forth. She wanted to be back to work to earn the insurance that she had that was paying for David's bills. Marie said goodbye to the press and thanked everyone for their huge help, and love. The BPPD gave her a check for $103,000 that they collected for her and David. They said goodbye to Ken and Judy, who drove them to the airport, and with that, they flew first class to Boston from LA. And this is where we leave you for now.
0: Yep. So, next week is going to be the final installment, and I, as much as I love this case, mostly just because, um, it has such a like a deeper meaning for a lot of people. But it also, you know, the boy teaches us a lot and it, it's kind of a happy ending. But I'm not gonna tell you that for now, because we're leaving and I'm gonna I'm gonna go um get some sleep now. So don't forget to lock your doors and stay, stay out, out of talk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.